What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Chapter 22 of Bleak House. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson. Bleak House by Charles Dickens. Chapter 22. Mr. Bucket. Allegory looks pretty cool in Lincoln's Inn Fields, though the evening is hot, for both Mr. Tulkinghorn's windows are wide open, and the room is lofty, gusty, and gloomy. These may not be desirable characteristics when November comes with fog and sleet, or January with ice and snow, but they have their merits in the sultry long vacation weather. They enable allegory, though it has cheeks like peaches, and knees like bunches of blossoms, and rosy swellings for calves to its legs and muscles to its arms, to look tolerably cool to-night. Plenty of dust comes in at Mr. Tulkinghorn's windows, and plenty more has generated among his furniture and papers. It lies thick everywhere. When a breeze from the country that has lost its way takes fright, and makes a blind hurry to rush out again, it flings as much dust in the eyes of allegory as the law. Or Mr. Tulkinghorn, one of its trustiest representatives, may scatter on occasion in the eyes of the laity. In his lowering magazine of dust, the universal article into which his papers and himself, and all his clients, and all things of earth, animate and inanimate, are resolving, Mr. Tulkinghorn sits at one of the open windows, enjoying a bottle of old port. Though a hard-grained man, close, dry, and silent, he can enjoy old wine with the best. He has a priceless bin of port in some artful cellar under the fields, which is one of his many secrets. When he dines alone in chambers, as he has dined to-day, and has his bit of fish, and his steak, or chicken, brought in from the coffee-house, he descends with a candle to the echoing regions below the deserted mansion, and, heralded by a remote reverberation of thundering doors, comes gravely back, encircled by an earthy atmosphere, and carrying a bottle from which he pours a radiant nectar, two score and ten years old, that blushes in the glass to find itself so famous, and fills the room with the fragrance of southern grapes. Mr. Tulkinghorn, sitting in the twilight by the open window, enjoys his wine. As if it whispered to him of its fifty years of silence and seclusion, it shuts him up the closer. More impenetrable than ever, he sits and drinks, and mellows, as it were, in secrecy, pondering at that twilight hour on all the mysteries he knows, associated with darkening woods in the country, and vast, blank, shut-up houses in town, and perhaps sparing a thought or two for himself, and his family history, and his money, and his will, all a mystery to everyone, 
and that one bachelor friend of his, a man of the same mould and a lawyer too, who lived the same kind of life until he was seventy-five years old, and then suddenly conceiving, as it is supposed, an impression that it was too monotonous, gave his gold watch to his hairdresser, one summer evening, and walked leisurely home to the temple, and hanged himself. But Mr. Tulkinghorn is not alone to-night, to ponder at his usual length. Seated at the same table, though with his chair modestly and uncomfortably drawn little way from it, sits a bald, mild, shining man, who coughs respectfully behind his hand when the lawyer bids him fill his glass. "'Now, Snagsby,' says Mr. Tulkinghorn, "'to go over this odd story again.' <coughs> "'If you please, sir.' "'You told me when you were so good as to step round here last night.' "'For which I must ask you to excuse me if it was a liberty, sir. But I remember that you had taken a sort of interest in that person, and I thought it possible that, that you might just wish to—' Mr. Tulkinghorn is not the man to help him to any conclusion, or to admit anything as to any possibility concerning himself. So Mr. Snagsby trails off into saying, with an awkward cough, <coughs> "'I must ask you to excuse the liberty, sir, I am sure.' "'Not at all,' says Mr. Tulkinghorn. "'You told me, Sagsby, that you put on your hat and came round without mentioning your intention to your wife. That was prudent, I think, because it's not a matter of such importance that it requires to be mentioned.' "'Well, sir,' returns Mr. Snagsby, you see, my little woman is <coughs> not to put too fine a point upon it, inquisitive. She's inquisitive. Poor little thing, she's liable to spasms, and it's good for her to have her mind employed. In consequence of which she employs it, <coughs> I should say, upon every individual thing she can lay hold of whether it concerns her or not. Especially not. My little woman has a very active mind, sir." Mr. Snagsby drinks, and murmurs, with an admiring cough behind his hand, mm, "'Oh, dear me, oh, very fine wine, indeed!' "'Therefore you kept your visit to yourself last night,' says Mr. Tulkinghorn, "'and to-night, too?' Oh, yes, sir, and to-night, too. My little woman is at present in, <coughs> not to put too fine a point upon it, in a pious state, or in what she considers such, and attends the evening exertions, <laughs> which is the name they go by, of a reverend party of the name of Chadband. He has a great deal of eloquence at his command, undoubtedly, but I'm not quite favourable to his style, myself. That's neither here nor there. <clears throat> My little woman, being engaged in that way, made it easier for me to step round in a quiet manner. Mr. Tulkinghorn assents. Fill your glass, Snagsby. Oh, <clears throat> thank you, sir, I I'm sure, returns the stationer with his cough of deference. Oh, <clears throat> this is wonderfully fine wine, sir. "'It is a rare wine now,' says Mr. Tulkinghorn. "'It is fifty years old.' Oh, "'Is it indeed, sir? <clears throat> oh, but, but I am not surprised to hear it, I am sure. It, it might be very 
age, almost. After rendering this general tribute to the port, Mr. Snagsby, in his modesty, coughs an apology behind his hand for drinking anything so precious. "'Will you run over once again what the boy said?' asked Mr. Tulkinghorn, putting his hands into the pockets of his rusty small clothes, and leaning quietly back in his chair. <coughs> "'With pleasure, sir.' Then, with fidelity, though with some prolixity, the law-stationer repeats Joe's statement made to the assembled guests at his house. On coming to the end of his narrative, he gives a great start, and breaks off with, "'Oh, dear me, sir, I wasn't aware there was any other gentleman present.' Mr. Snagsby is dismayed to see, standing with an attentive face between himself and the lawyer, at a little distance from the table, a person with a hat and stick in his hand, who was not there when he himself came in, and has not since entered by the door, or by either of the windows. There is a press in the room, but its hinges have not creaked, nor has a step been audible upon the floor. Yet this third person stands there, with his attentive face, and his hat and stick in his hands, and his hands behind him, a composed and quiet listener. He is a stoutly built, steady-looking, sharp-eyed man in black, of about the middle age, except that he looks at Mr. Snagsby as if he were going to take his portrait. There is nothing remarkable about him at first sight, but his ghostly manner of appearing. "'Don't mind this gentleman,' says Mr. Tulkinghorn, in his quiet way. "'This is only Mr. Bucket.' <coughs> "'Oh, indeed, sir,' returns the stationer, expressing by a cough that he is quite in the dark as to who Mr. Bucket may be. "'I wanted him to hear the story,' says the lawyer, "'because I have half a mind, for a reason, to know more of it, and he is very intelligent in such things. What do you say to this, Bucket?' "'Hm, it's very plain, sir.' Since our people have moved this boy on, and he's not to be found on his old lay, if Mr. Snagsby don't object to go down with me to Tom all alone's and point him out, we can have him here in less than a couple of hours' time. I can do it without Mr. Snagsby, of course, but this is the shortest way. Mr. Bucket is a detective officer, Snagsby, says the lawyer in explanation. Easy, <coughs> indeed, sir says Mr. Snagsby, with a strong tendency in his clump of hair to stand on end. "'And if you have no real objection to accompany Mr. Bucket to the place in question,' pursues the lawyer, "'I shall feel obliged to you if you will do so.' In a moment's hesitation on the part of Mr. Snagsby, Bucket dips down to the bottom of his mind. "'Don't you be afraid of hurting the boy,' he says. "'You won't do that. It's all right as far as the boy's concerned.' We shall only bring him here to ask him a question or so I want to put to him, and he'll be paid for his trouble, and sent away again. It'll be a good job for him. I promise you, as a man, that you shall see the boy sent away all right. Don't you be afraid of hurting him. You aren't going to do that." "'Very well, Mr. Tulkinghorn,' cries Mr. Snagsby cheerfully, and reassured. "'Since that's the case—' "'Yes. And look here, Mr. Snagsby,' resumes Bucket, taking him aside by the arm, tapping him familiarly on the breast, and speaking in a confidential tone. "'You're a man of the world, you know, and a man of business, and a man of sense. That's what you are. 
"'I am sure I am much obliged to you for your good opinion,' returns the stationer with his cough of modesty. "'But—that's what you are, you know,' says Bucket. "'Now, it ain't necessary to say to a man like you, engaged in your business, which is a business of trust, and requires a person to be wide awake, and have his senses about him, and his head screwed on tight, I had an uncle in your business once. It ain't necessary to say to a man like you that it's the best and wisest way to keep little matters like this quiet. Don't you see? Quiet. Certainly, certainly, returns the other. I don't mind telling you, says Bucket, with an engaging appearance of frankness, that as far as I can understand it, there seems to be a doubt whether this dead person wasn't entitled to a little property, and whether this female hasn't been up to some games respecting that property. Don't you see? <coughs> oh, says Mr. Snagsby, but not appearing to see quite distinctly. Now, what you want, pursues Bucket again, tapping Mr. Snagsby on the breast in a comfortable and soothing manner, is that every person should have their rights according to justice. That's what you want. Uh, to be sure, returns Mr. Snagsby with a nod. On account of which, and at the same time to oblige a, do you call it, in your business, customer or client? I forget how my uncle used to call it. <clears throat> Why, I generally say customer myself, replies Mr. Snagsby. You're right returns Mr. Bucket, shaking hands with him quite affectionately, on account of which, and at the same time to oblige a real good customer, you mean to go down with me in confidence, to Tom all alone's, and to keep the whole thing quiet ever afterwards, and never mention it to any one. That's about your intentions, if I understand you. Uh, you're right, sir, you're right says Mr. Snagsby. "'Then here's your hat,' returns his new friend, quite as intimate with it as if he had made it. "'And if you're ready, I am.' They leave Mr. Tulkinghorn, without a ruffle on the surface of his unfathomable depths, drinking his old wine, and go down into the streets. "'You don't happen to know a very good sort of person of the name of Gridley, do you?' says Bucket, in friendly converse, as they descend the stairs. "'No,' says Mr. Snagsby, considering. "'I don't know anybody of that name. Why?' "'Nothing particular,' says Bucket. "'Only having allowed his temper to get a little the better of him, and having been threatening some respectable people, he's keeping out of the way of a warrant I've got against him, which it's a pity that a man of sense should do.' As they walk along, Mr. Snagsby observes, as a novelty, that however quick their pace may be, his companion still seems in some undefinable manner to lurk and lounge. Also, that whenever he is going to turn to the right or left, he pretends to have a fixed purpose in his mind of going straight ahead, and wheels off sharply at the very last moment. Now and then, when they pass a police constable on his beat, Mr. Snagsby notices that both the constable and his guide fall into a deep abstraction as they come towards each other, and appear entirely to overlook each other, and to gaze into space. 
in a few instances mr bucket coming behind some undersized young man with a shining hat on and his sleek hair twisted into one flat curl on each side of his head almost without glancing at him touches him with his stick upon which the young man looking round instantly evaporates for the most part mr bucket notices things in general with a face as unchanging as the great morning ring on his little finger or the brooch composed of not much diamond and a good deal of setting which he wears in his shirt when they come at last to tom all alone's mr bucket stops for a moment at the corner and takes a lighted bull's-eye from the constable on duty there who then accompanies him with his own particular bull's-eye at his waist between his two conductors mr snagsby passes along the middle of a villainous street undrained unventilated deep in black mud and corrupt water though the roads are dry elsewhere and reeking with such smells and sights that he who has lived in london all his life can scarce believe his senses branching from this street and its heaps of ruins are other streets and courts so infamous that mr snagsby sickens in body and mind and feels as if he were going every moment deeper down into the infernal gulf draw off a bit here mr snagsby says bucket as a kind of shabby palanquin is borne towards them surrounded by a noisy crowd here's the fever coming up the street as the unseen wretch goes by the crowd leaving that object of attraction hovers round the three visitors like a dream of horrible faces and fades away up alleys and into ruins and behind walls and with occasional cries and shrill whistles of warning thenceforth flits about them until they leave the place are those the fever houses darby mr bucket coolly asks as he turns his bull's eye on a line of stinking ruins darby replies that all them are and further that in all for months and months the people have been down by dozens and have been carried out dead and dying like sheep with the rot bucket observing to mr snagsby as they go on again that he looks a little poorly mr snagsby answers that he feels as if he couldn't breathe the dreadful air there is inquiry made at various houses for a boy named joe as few people are known in tom all alone's by any christian sign there is much reference to mr snagsby whether he means carrots or the colonel or gallows or young chisel or terrier tip or lanky or the brick mr snagsby describes over and over again there are conflicting opinions respecting the original of his picture some think it must be carrots some say the brick the colonel is produced but is not at all near the thing whenever mr snagsby and his conductors are stationary the crowd flows round and from its squalid depths obsequious advice heaves up to mr bucket whenever they move and the angry bull's eyes glare it fades away and flits about them up the alleys and in the ruins and behind the walls as before at last there is a lair found out where toughy or the tough subject lays him down at night and it is thought that the tough subject may be joe comparison of notes between mr snagsby and the proprietress of the house a drunken face tied up in a black bundle and flaring out of a heap of rags on the floor of a dog hutch which is her private apartment leads to the establishment of this conclusion toughy has gone to the doctor's to get a bottle of stuff for a sick woman but will be here anon and uh, who have we got here to-night says mr bucket opening another door and glaring in with his bull's-eye two drunken men eh and two women 
The men are sound enough. Turning back each sleeper's arm from his face to look at him, are these your good men, my dears? Yes, sir, returns one of the women. They are our husbands. Brickmakers, eh? Yes, sir. What are you doing here? You don't belong to London. No, sir. We belong to Hertfordshire. Whereabouts in Hertfordshire? St. Albans. Come up on the tramp? We walked up yesterday. There's no work down with us at present, but we have done no good by coming here, and shall do none, I expect. Oh, that's not the way to do much good, says Mr. Bucket, turning his head in the direction of the unconscious figures on the ground. It ain't, indeed, replies the woman with a sigh. Jenny and me knows it full well. The room, though two or three feet higher than the door, is so low that the head of the tallest of the visitors would touch the blackened ceiling if he stood upright. It is offensive to every sense. Even the gross candle burns pale and sickly in the polluted air. There are a couple of benches, and a higher bench by way of table. The men lie asleep where they stumbled down, but the women sit by the candle. Lying in the arms of the woman who has spoken is a very young child. "'Why, what age do you call that little creature?' says Bucket. "'It looks as if it was born yesterday.' He is not at all rough about it, and as he turns his light gently on the infant, Mr. Snagsby is strangely reminded of another infant, encircled with light, that he has seen in pictures. "'He is not three weeks old yet, sir,' says the woman. "'Is he your child?' "'Mine.' The other woman, who is bending over it when they came in, stoops down again and kisses it as it lies asleep. "'You seem as fond of it as if you were the mother yourself,' says Mr. Bucket. "'I was the mother of one like it, master, and it died. "'Ah, oh, Jenny, Jenny,' says the other woman to her. "'Better so. Much better to think of dead than alive, Jenny. Much better.' "'Why, you aren't such an unnatural woman, I hope,' returns Bucket sternly, "'as to wish your own child dead?' "'God knows you're right, master,' she returns. "'I'm not. I'd stand between it and death with me own life, if I could, as true as any pretty lady.' "'Then don't talk in that wrong manner,' says Mr. Bucket, mollified again. "'Why do you do it?' "'It's brought into my head, master,' returns the woman, her eyes filling with tears. "'When I look down at the child lying so, "'if it was never to wake no more, "'you'd think me mad I should take on so. "'I know that very well. "'I w was with Jenny when she lost hers, "'wan't I, Jenny? "'And I knew how she grieved.' "'But look around you at this place. "'Look at them,' glancing at the sleepers on the ground. "'Look at the boy you're waiting for, "'who's gone out to do me a good turn. "'Think of the children that your business lays with often and often, "'and that you see grow up.' "'Well, well,' says Mr. Bucket, 
"'You train him respectable, and he'll be a comfort to you, and look after you in your old age, you know.' "'I mean to try hard,' she answers, wiping her eyes. "'But I've been a-thinking. Been over-tired to-night, and not well with the ague, of all the many things that will come in his way. My master will be against it, and he'll be beat, and see me beat, and made to fear his home, and perhaps to stray wild. If I work for him ever so much, and ever so hard, there's no one to help me. And if he should be turned bad, spite of all I could do, and the time should come when I should sit by him in his sleep, made hard and changed, and it likely I should think of him as he lies in my lap now, and wish he had died, as Jenny's child died. There, there, says Jenny. Liz, you're tired and ill. Let me take him. In doing so, she displaces the mother's dress, but quickly readjusts it over the wounded and bruised bosom, where the baby has been lying. "'It's my dead child,' says Jenny, walking up and down as she nurses, "'that makes me love this child so dear, and it's my dead child that makes her love it so dear, too, as even to think of its being taken away from her now. While she thinks that, I think what fortune would I give to have my darling back.' but we mean the same thing, if we knew how to say it, us two mothers does, in our poor hearts. As Mr. Snagsby blows his nose, and coughs his cough of sympathy, a step is heard without. Mr. Bucket throws his light into the doorway, and says to Mr. Snagsby, "'Now, what do you say to Tuffy? Will he do?' "'That's Joe,' says Mr. Snagsby. Joe stands amazed in the disk of light, like a ragged figure in a magic lantern, trembling, to think that he has offended against the law in not having moved on far enough. Mr. Snagsby, however, giving him the consolatory assurance, "'It's only a job you will be paid for, Joe,' he recovers, and on being taken outside by Mr. Bucket for a little private confabulation, tells his tale satisfactorily, though out of breath." "'I have squared it with the lad,' says Mr. Bucket, returning, "'and it's all right. "'Now, Mr. Snagsby, we're ready for you.' First, Joe has to complete his errand of good nature, by handing over the physic he has been to get, which he delivers with the laconic verbal direction that, "'It's to be all took directly.' Secondly, Mr. Snagsby has to lay upon the table half a crown his usual panacea for an immense variety of afflictions. Thirdly, Mr. Bucket has to take Joe by the arm, a little above the elbow, and walk him on before him, without which observance neither the tough subject nor any other subject could be professionally conducted to Lincoln's Inn Fields. These arrangements completed, they give the women good night, and come out once more into black and foul Tom all-alones. By the noisome ways through which they descended into that pit, they gradually emerge from it, the crowd flitting and whistling and skulking about them, until they come to the verge, where restoration of the bull's-eyes is made to Derby. Here the crowd, like a concourse of imprisoned demons, turns back, yelling, and is seen no more. 
through the clearer and fresher streets, never so clear and fresh to Mr. Snagsby's mind as now, they walk and ride until they come to Mr. Tulkinghorn's gate. As they ascend the dim stairs, Mr. Tulkinghorn's chambers being on the first floor, Mr. Bucket mentions that he has the key of the outer door in his pocket, and that there is no need to ring. For a man so expert in most things of that kind, Bucket takes time to open the door, and makes some noise, too. It may be that he sounds a note of preparation. Howbeit, they come at last into the hall, where a lamp is burning, and so into Mr. Tulkinghorn's usual room, the room where he drank his old wine to-night. He is not there, but his two old-fashioned candlesticks are, and the room is tolerably light. Mr. Bucket, still having his professional hold of Joe, and appearing to Mr. Snagsby to possess an unlimited number of eyes, makes a little way into this room, when Joe starts and stops. "'What's the matter?' says Bucket in a whisper. "'There she is,' cries Joe. "'Who?' "'The lady.' A female figure, closely veiled, stands in the middle of the room, where the light falls upon it. It is quite still and silent. The front of the figure is towards them, but it takes no notice of their entrance, and remains like a statue. "'Now, tell me,' says Bucket aloud, "'how do you know that to be the lady?' "'I know the whale,' replies Joe, staring, "'and a bonnet, and the gown.' "'Be quite sure of what you say, Tuff,' returns Bucket, narrowly observant of him. "'Look again.' "'I am a-looking as hard as ever I can look,' says Joe, with starting eyes. "'And that there's the whale, the bonnet, and the gown.' "'What about those rings you told me of?' asks Bucket. "'A-sparkling all over here,' says Joe rubbing the fingers of his left hand on the knuckles of his right, without taking his eyes from the figure. The figure removes the right-hand glove, and shows the hand. "'Now, what do you say to that?' asks Bucket. Joe shakes his head. "'Not rings, a bit like them. Not, not a hand like that.' "'What are you talking of?' says Bucket, evidently pleased, though, and well pleased, too. "'And—' as was a deal whiter, a deal delicater, and a deal smaller, returns Joe. Why, you'll tell me I'm me own mother next, says Mr. Bucket. Do you recollect the lady's voice? I think I does, says Joe. The figure speaks. Was it at all like this? I will speak as long as you like, if you are not sure. Was it this voice, or at all, like this voice? Joe looks aghast at Mr. Bucket. Not a bit. Then what? retorts that worthy, pointing to the figure. Did you say it was the lady for? Cause, says Joe, with a perplexed stare, but without being at all shaken in his certainty. Cause that there's the whale, the bonnet, and the gown. It is her, and it ain't her. It ain't her and, nor yet her rings, nor yet her voice. But that there's the whale, the bonnet, and the gown, and they wore the same way what she wore em, and it's her right what she was, 
and she give me a sovereign and hooked it well says mr bucket slightly we haven't got much good out of you but however here's five shillings for you take care how you spend it don't get yourself into trouble bucket stealthily tells the coins from one hand into the other like counters which is a way he has his principal use of them being in these games of skill and then puts them in a little pile into the boy's hand and takes him out to the door leaving mr snagsby not by any means comfortable under these mysterious circumstances alone with the veiled figure but on mr tulkinghorn's coming into the room the veil is raised and a sufficiently good-looking frenchwoman is revealed though her expression is something of the intensest thank you mademoiselle hortense says mr tulkinghorn with his usual equanimity i will give you no further trouble about this little wager you will do me the kindness to remember sir that i am not at present placed says mademoiselle certainly certainly and to confer upon me the favour of your distinguished recommendation by all means mademoiselle hortense a word from mr tulkinghorn is so powerful it shall not be wanting mademoiselle receive the assurance of my devoted gratitude dear sir good night mademoiselle goes out with an air of native gentility and mr bucket to whom it is on an emergency as natural to be groom of the ceremonies as it is to be anything else shows her downstairs not without gallantry well bucket quoth mr tulkinghorn on his return it's all squared you see as i squared it myself sir there ain't a doubt that it was the other one with this one's dress on the boy was exact respecting colours and everything mr snagsby i promised you as a man that he should be sent away all right don't say it wasn't done <coughs> you have kept your word sir returns the stationer and if i can be of no further use mr tulkinghorn i think <clears throat> as my little woman will be getting anxious thank you snagsby no further use says mr tulkinghorn i am quite indebted to you for the trouble you have taken already <clears throat> not at all sir i wish you a good night you see mr snagsby says mr bucket accompanying him to the door and shaking hands with him over and over again what i like in you is that you're a man it's of no use pumping that's what you are when you know you've done a right thing you put it away and it's done with and gone and there's an end of it that's what you do uh, that is certainly what i endeavour to do sir returns mr snagsby no you don't do yourself justice it ain't what you endeavour to do says mr bucket shaking hands with him and blessing him in the tenderest manner it's what you do that's what i estimate in a man in your way of business mr snagsby makes a suitable response and goes homeward so confused by the events of the evening that he is doubtful of his being awake and out doubtful of the reality of the street through which he goes, doubtful of the reality of the moon that shines above him. He is presently reassured on these subjects by the unchallengeable reality of Mrs. Snagsby, sitting up with her head in a perfect beehive of curl-papers and nightcap, who has dispatched Guster to the police station, with official intelligence of her husband's being made away with, 
and who within the last two hours has passed through every stage of swooning with the greatest decorum but as the little woman feelingly says many thanks she gets for it end of chapter twenty two Chapter twenty three of Bleak House. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson. Bleak House by Charles Dickens. Chapter twenty three Esther's Narrative. We came home from Mr. Boythorn's after six pleasant weeks. We were often in the park and in the woods and seldom passed the lodge where we had taken shelter without looking in to speak to the keeper's wife but we saw no more of Lady Dedlock, except at church on Sundays. There was company at Chesney Wold, and although several beautiful faces surrounded her, her face retained the same influence on me as at first. I do not quite know even now whether it was painful or pleasurable, whether it drew me towards her or made me shrink from her. I think I admired her with a kind of fear, and I know that in her presence my thoughts always wandered back, as they had done at first, to that old time of my life. I had a fancy, on more than one of these Sundays, that what this lady so curiously was to me, I was to her. I mean, that I disturbed her thoughts as she influenced mine, though in some different way. But when I stole a glance at her, and saw her so composed and distant and unapproachable, I felt this to be a foolish weakness. Indeed, I felt the whole state of my mind in reference to her to be weak and unreasonable, and I remonstrated with myself about it as much as I could. One incident that occurred before we quitted Mr. Boythorn's house I had better mention in this place. I was walking in the garden with Ada when I was told that someone wished to see me. Going into the breakfast-room, where this person was waiting, I found it to be the French maid, who had cast off her shoes and walked through the wet grass on the day when it thundered and lightened. Mademoiselle. She began, looking fixedly at me with her two eager eyes, though otherwise presenting an agreeable appearance, and speaking neither with boldness nor civility. I have taken a great liberty in coming here. "'But you know how to excuse it, being so amiable, mademoiselle?' "'No excuse is necessary,' I returned, "'if you wish to speak to me.' "'That is my desire, mademoiselle. "'A thousand thanks for the permission. "'I have your leave to speak, is it not?' "'She said, in a quick, natural way. "'Certainly,' said I. "'Mademoiselle, you are so amiable. "'Listen, then, if you please. "'I have left my lady. "'We could not agree.' "'My lady is so high, so very high. "'Pardon, mademoiselle, you are right.' "'Her quickness anticipated what I might have said presently, "'but as yet had only thought. "'It is not for me to come here to complain of my lady. "'But I say she is so high, so very high, "'I will not say a word more. "'All the world knows that.' "'Go on, if you please,' said I. "'Assuredly, mademoiselle, I am thankful for your politeness.' "'Mademoiselle, I have an inexpressible desire to find service with a young lady who is good, accomplished, beautiful. You are good, accomplished, and beautiful as an angel. Ah, could I have the honour of being your domestic?' 
"'I am sorry,' I began. "'Do not dismiss me so soon, mademoiselle,' she said, with an involuntary contraction of her fine black eyebrows. "'Let me hope a moment. Mademoiselle, I know this service would be more retired than that which I have quitted. Well, I wish that. I know this service would be less distinguished than that which I have quitted. Well, I wish that. I know that I should win less as to wages here. Good. I am content. I assure you, said I, quite embarrassed by the mere idea of having such an attendant, that I keep no maid. Ah, mademoiselle, but why not? Why not, when you can have one so devoted to you, who would be enchanted to serve you, who would be so true, so zealous, and so faithful every day? Mademoiselle, I wish with all my heart to serve you. Do not speak of money at present. Take me as I am, for nothing. She was so singularly earnest that I drew back almost afraid of her. Without appearing to notice it, in her ardour, she still pressed herself upon me, speaking in a rapid, subdued voice, though always with a certain grace and propriety. "'Mademoiselle, I come from the South Country, where we are quick, and where we like and dislike very strong. My lady was too high for me. I was too high for her. It is done, past, finished. Receive me as your domestic, and I will serve you well.' i will do more for you than you figure to yourself now chut mademoiselle i will no matter i will do my utmost possible in all things if you accept my service you will not repent it mademoiselle you will not repent it and i will serve you well you don't know how well there was a lowering energy in her face, as she stood looking at me, while I explained the impossibility of my engaging her, without thinking it necessary to say how very little I desired to do so, which seemed to bring visibly before me some woman from the streets of Paris in the reign of terror. She heard me out, without interruption, and then said, with her pretty accent, and in her mildest voice, "'Hey, mademoiselle, I have received my answer.' I am sorry for it, but I must go elsewhere and seek what I have not found here. Will you graciously let me kiss your hand? She looked at me more intently as she took it, and seemed to take note, with a momentary touch, of every vein in it. I fear I surprised you, mademoiselle, on the day of the storm, she said with a parting curtsy. I confessed that she had surprised us all. "'I took an oath, mademoiselle,' she said, smiling, "'and I wanted to stamp it on my mind so that I might keep it faithfully. "'And I will. Adieu, mademoiselle.' "'So ended our conference, which I was very glad to bring to a close. "'I suppose she went away from the village, for I saw her no more, "'and nothing else occurred to disturb our tranquil summer pleasures "'until six weeks were out.' and we returned home, as I began just now by saying. At that time, and for a good many weeks after that time, Richard was constant in his visits. Besides coming every Saturday or Sunday, and remaining with us until Monday morning, he sometimes rode out on horseback unexpectedly, and passed the evening with us, and rode back again early next day. He was as vivacious as ever, and told us he was very industrious, but I was not easy in my mind about him. It appeared to me that his industry was all misdirected. 
I could not find that it led to anything but the formation of delusive hopes in connection with the suit already the pernicious cause of so much sorrow and ruin. He had got at the core of that mystery now, he told us, and nothing could be plainer than that the will under which he and Ada were to take I don't know how many thousands of pounds must be finally established, if there were any sense or justice in the court of chancery. But, oh, what a great if that sounded in my ears, and that this happy conclusion could not be much longer delayed. He proved this to himself, by all the weary arguments on that side he had read, and every one of them sunk him deeper in the infatuation. He had even begun to haunt the court. He told us how he saw Miss Flight there daily, how they talked together, and how he did her little kindnesses, and how, while he laughed at her, he pitied her from his heart. But he never thought, never, my poor, dear, sanguine Richard, capable of so much happiness then, and with such better things before him, what a fatal link was riveting between his fresh youth and her faded age, between his free hopes and her caged birds, and her hungry garret and her wandering mind! Ada loved him too well to mistrust him much in anything he said or did, and my guardian, though he frequently complained of the east wind, and read more than usual in the growlery, preserved a strict silence on the subject. So I thought one day, when I went to London to meet Caddy Jellybee at her solicitation, I would ask Richard to be in waiting for me at the coach-office, that we might have a little talk together. I found him there when I arrived, and we walked away arm in arm. "'Well, Richard,' said I, as soon as I could begin to be grave with him, "'are you beginning to feel more settled now?' "'Oh, yes, my dear,' returned Richard. "'I'm all right enough.' "'But settled,' said I. "'How do you mean, settled?' returned Richard, with his gay laugh. "'Settled in the law,' said I. "'Oh, I,' replied Richard, "'I'm all right enough.' "'You said that before, my dear Richard.' "'And you don't think it's an answer, eh? "'Well, perhaps it's not. "'Settled? "'You mean, do I feel as if I were settling down?' "'Yes. "'Why, no. "'I can't say I am settling down,' said Richard, strongly emphasising down, as if that expressed the difficulty. "'Because one can't settle down while this business remains in such an unsettled state. "'When I say this business, of course, I mean the forbidden subject.' "'Do you think it will ever be in a settled state?' said I. "'Not the least doubt of it,' answered Richard. We walked a little way without speaking, and presently Richard addressed me, in his frankest and most feeling manner, thus, "'My dear Esther, I understand you, and I wish to heaven I were a more constant sort of fellow. I don't mean constant to Ada, for I love her dearly, better and better every day, but constant to myself. Somehow I mean something that I can't very well express.' but you'll make it out. If I were a more constant sort of fellow, I should have held on either to Badger or to Kenge and Carboy like grim death, and should have begun to be steady and systematic by this time, and shouldn't be in debt, and— Are you in debt, Richard? Yes, said Richard. I am a little so, my dear. 
Also, I have taken rather too much to billiards, and that sort of thing. Now the murder's out. You despise me, Esther, don't you? You know I don't, said I. You are kinder to me than I often am to myself, he returned. My dear Esther, I am a very unfortunate dog not to be more settled. But how can I be more settled? If you lived in an unfinished house, you couldn't settle down in it. If you were condemned to leave everything you undertook unfinished, you would find it hard to apply yourself to anything. And yet, that's my unhappy case. I was born into this unfinished contention with all its chances and changes, and it began to unsettle me before I quite knew the difference between a suit at law and a suit of clothes, and it has gone on unsettling me ever since. And here I am now, conscious sometimes that I am but a worthless fellow to love my confiding cousin Ada. We were in a solitary place, and he put his hands before his eyes and sobbed as he said the words. "'Oh, Richard,' said I, "'do not be so moved. You have a noble nature, and Ada's love may make you worthier every day.' "'I know, my dear,' he replied, pressing my arm. I know all that. You mustn't mind my being a little soft now, for I have had all this upon my mind for a long time, and have often meant to speak to you, and have sometimes wanted opportunity and sometimes courage. I know what the thought of Ada ought to do for me, but it doesn't do it. I am too unsettled even for that. I love her most devotedly. And yet I do her wrong, and doing myself wrong, every day and hour. But it can't last for ever. We shall come on for a final hearing, and get judgment in our favour, and then you and Ada shall see what I can really be. It had given me a pang to hear him sob and see the tears start out between his fingers, but that was infinitely less affecting to me than the hopeful animation with which he said these words. I have looked well into the papers, Esther. I have been deep in them for months. He continued, recovering his cheerfulness in a moment. And you may rely upon it that we shall come out triumphant. As to years of delay, there has been no want of them, heaven knows. And there is the greater probability of our bringing the matter to a speedy close. In fact, it's on the paper now. It will be all right at last. And then you shall see." Recalling how he had just now placed Messrs. Kenge and Carboy in the same category with Mr. Badger, I asked him when he intended to be articled in Lincoln's Inn. "'There again, I think not at all, Esther,' he returned with an effort. "'I fancy I have had enough of it. Having worked at Jarndyce and Jarndyce like a galley-slave, I have slaked my thirst for the law, and satisfied myself that I shouldn't like it. Besides, I find it unsettles me more and more to be so constantly upon the scene of action. So what? Continued Richard, confident again by this time. Do I naturally turn my thoughts to? I can't imagine, said I. Don't look so serious, returned Richard, because it's the best thing I can do, my dear Esther, I am certain. It's not as if I wanted a profession for life. These proceedings will come to a termination, and then I am provided for. 
No, I look upon it as a pursuit which is in its nature more or less unsettled, and therefore suited to my temporary condition. I may say, precisely suited. What is it that I naturally turn my thoughts to? I looked at him and shook my head. What? said Richard, in a tone of perfect conviction. But the army. The army? said I. The army, of course. What I have to do is to get a commission. And there I am, you know, said Richard. And then he showed me, proved by elaborate calculations in his pocket-book, that supposing he had contracted, say, two hundred pounds of debt in six months out of the army, and that he contracted no debt at all within a corresponding period in the army, as to which he had quite made up his mind, this step must involve a saving of four hundred pounds in a year, or two thousand pounds in five years, which was a considerable sum. And then he spoke so ingenuously and sincerely of the sacrifice he made in withdrawing himself for a time from Ada, and of the earnestness with which he aspired, as in thought he always did, I know full well, to repay her love, and to ensure her happiness, and to conquer what was amiss in himself, and to acquire the very soul of decision, that he made my heart ache keenly, sorely. For, I thought, how would this end, how could this end, when so soon and so surely all his manly qualities were touched by the fatal blight that ruined everything it rested on? I spoke to Richard with all the earnestness I felt, and all the hope I could not quite feel then, and implored him for Ada's sake not to put any trust in Chancery. To all I said, Richard readily assented, riding over the court and everything else in his easy way, and drawing the brightest picture of the character he was to settle into. Alas, when the grievous suit should lose its hold upon him. We had a long talk, but it always came back to that in substance. At last we came to Soho Square, where Caddy Jellyby had appointed to wait for me as a quiet place in the neighbourhood of Newman Street. Caddy was in the garden in the centre, and hurried out as soon as I appeared. After a few cheerful words, Richard left us together. "'Prince has a pupil over the way, Esther,' said Caddy, "'and got the key for us. So if you'll walk round and round here with me, we can lock ourselves in, and I can tell you comfortably what I wanted to see your dear good face about.' "'Very well, my dear,' said I. "'Nothing could be better.' So Caddy, after affectionately squeezing the dear good face, as she called it, locked the gate, and took my arm, and we began to walk round the garden very cosily. "'You see, Esther,' said Caddy, who thoroughly enjoyed a little confidence, "'after you spoke to me about its being wrong to marry without Ma's knowledge, or even to keep Ma long in the dark respecting our engagement,' though I don't believe Ma cares much for me, I must say. I thought it right to mention your opinions to Prince, in the first place because I want to profit by everything you tell me, and in the second place because I have no secrets from Prince. I hope he approved, Caddy. Oh, my dear, I assure you he would approve of anything you could say. You have no idea what an opinion he has of you. Indeed! "'Esther, it's enough to make anybody but me jealous,' said Caddy, laughing and shaking her head. "'But it only makes me joyful, for you are the first friend I have had, and the best friend I ever can have, and nobody can respect and love you too much to please me.' 
"'Upon my word, Caddy,' said I, "'you are in the general conspiracy to keep me in a good humour. "'Well, my dear?' "'Well, I am going to tell you,' replied Caddy, "'crossing her hands confidentially upon my arm. "'So we talked a good deal about it, and so I said to Prince, "'Prince, as Miss Summerson, "'I hope you didn't say Miss Summerson. "'No, I didn't.' cried Caddy, greatly pleased and with the brightest of faces. I said Esther. I said to Prince, as Esther is decidedly of that opinion, Prince, and has expressed it to me, and always hints it when she writes those kind notes, which you are so fond of hearing me read to you, I am prepared to disclose the truth to Ma, whenever you think proper. And I think, Prince, said I, that Esther thinks that I should be in a better and truer and more honourable position altogether if you did the same to your papa. Yes, my dear, said I, Esther certainly does think so. So, I was right, you see, exclaimed Caddy. Well, this troubled Prince a good deal, not because he had the least doubt about it, but because he is so considerate of the feelings of old Mr. Turveydrop, and he had his apprehensions, that old Mr. Turveydrop might break his heart, or faint away, or be very much overcome in some affecting manner or other, if he made such an announcement. He feared old Mr. Turveydrop might consider it undutiful, and might receive too great a shock for old mr turveydrop's deportment is very beautiful you know esther said caddy and his feelings are extremely sensitive are they my dear oh extremely sensitive prince says so now this has caused my darling child oh i didn't mean to use the expression to you esther caddy apologized her face suffused with blushes but i generally call my prince my darling child I laughed, and Caddy laughed and blushed, and went on. "'This has caused him, Esther.' "'Caused whom, my dear?' "'Oh, you tiresome thing,' said Caddy, laughing, with her pretty face on fire. "'My darling child, if you insist upon it. <laughs> this has caused him weeks of uneasiness, and has made him delay from day to day in a very anxious manner. At last he said to me, "'Caddy, if Miss Summerson, who was a great favourite with my father, could be prevailed upon to be present when I broke the subject, I think I could do it. So I promised I would ask you, and I made up my mind besides,' said Caddy, looking at me hopefully but timidly, "'that if you consented, I would ask you afterwards to come with me to Ma.' This is what I meant when I said in my note that I had a great favour and a great assistance to beg of you and if you thought you could grant it esther we should both be very grateful let me see caddy said i pretending to consider really i think i could do a greater thing than that if the need were pressing i am at your service and the darling child's my dear whenever you like caddy was quite transported by this reply of mine being i believe as susceptible to the least kindness or encouragement as any tender heart that ever beat in this world and after another turn or two round the garden during which she put on an entirely new pair of gloves and made herself as resplendent as possible that she might do no avoidable discredit to the master of deportment we went to newman street direct 
Prince was teaching, of course. We found him engaged with a not very hopeful pupil, a stubborn little girl with a sulky forehead, a deep voice, and an inanimate, dissatisfied mamma, whose case was certainly not rendered more hopeful by the confusion into which we threw her preceptor. The lesson at last came to an end, after proceeding as discordantly as possible, and when the little girl had changed her shoes, and had had her white muslin extinguished in shawls, she was taken away. After a few words of preparation, we then went in search of Mr. Turveydrop, whom we found, grouped with his hat and gloves, as a model of deportment, on the sofa in his private apartment, the only comfortable room in the house. He appeared to have dressed at his leisure in the intervals of a light collation, and his dressing-case, brushes, and so forth, all of quite an elegant kind, lay about. "'Father, Miss Summerson, Miss Jellyby.' "'Charmed, enchanted,' said Mr. Turveydrop, rising with his high-shouldered bow. "'Permit me,' handing chairs, "'be seated.' kissing the tips of his left fingers, overjoyed, shutting his eyes and rolling. My little retreat is made a paradise, recomposing himself on the sofa like the second gentleman in Europe. "'Again you find us, Miss Summerson,' said he, using our little arts to polish, polish. Again the sex stimulates us and rewards us by the condescension of its lovely presence. It is much in these times, and we have made an awfully degenerating business of it since the days of His Royal Highness the Prince Regent, my patron, if I may presume to say so, to experience that deportment is not wholly trodden underfoot by mechanics, that it can yet bask in the smile of beauty, my dear madam. I said nothing, which I thought a suitable reply, and he took a pinch of snuff. "'My dear son,' said Mr. Turveydrop, "'you have four schools this afternoon. I would recommend a hasty sandwich.' "'Thank you, father,' returned Prince. "'I will be sure to be punctual. M my dear father, may I beg you to prepare your mind for what I am going to say?' "'Good heaven!' exclaimed the model, pale and aghast, as Prince and Caddy, hand in hand, bent down before him. "'What is this? Is this lunacy? Or what is this?' "'Father,' returned Prince, with great submission, "'I love this young lady, and we are engaged.' "'Engaged?' cried Mr. Turveydrop, reclining on the sofa, and shutting out the sight with his hand. "'An arrow launched at my brain by my own child.' "'We have been engaged for some time, father,' faltered Prince, "'and Miss Summerson, hearing of it, advised that we should declare the fact to you, "'and was so very kind as to attend on the present occasion. "'Miss Jellyby is a young lady who—' deeply respects you, father. Mr. Turveydrop uttered a groan. No, pray don't, pray don't, father, urged his son. Miss Jellyby is a young lady who deeply respects you, and our first desire is to consider your comfort. Mr. Turveydrop sobbed. 
"'No, pray don't, father,' cried his son. "'Boy,' said Mr. Turveydrop, "'it is well that your sainted mother is spared this pang. "'Strike deep, and spare not. "'Strike home, sir, strike home.' "'Pray don't say so, father,' implored Prince in tears. "'It goes to my heart.' "'I do assure you, father, that our first wish and intention is to consider your comfort. "'Caroline and I do not forget our duty. "'What is my duty is Caroline's, as we have often said together. "'And with your approval and consent, father, we will devote ourselves to making your life agreeable.' "'Strike home,' murmured Mr. Turveydrop. "'Strike home!' But he seemed to listen, I thought, too. "'My dear father,' returned Prince, "'we well know what little comforts you are accustomed to, and have a right to, and it will always be our study and our pride to provide those before anything.' "'If you will bless us with your approval and consent, father, "'we shall not think of being married until it is quite agreeable to you. "'And when we are married, we shall always make you, of course, our first consideration. "'You must ever be the head and master here, father, "'and we feel how truly unnatural it would be in us if we failed to know it, or if we fail to exert ourselves in every possible way to please you. Mr. Turveydrop underwent a severe internal struggle, and came upright on the sofa again, with his cheeks puffing over his stiff cravat, a perfect model of parental deportment. "'My son,' said Mr. Turveydrop, "'my children, I cannot resist your prayer. Be happy. His benignity, as he raised his future daughter-in-law, and stretched out his hand to his son, who kissed it with affectionate respect and gratitude, was the most confusing sight I ever saw. "'My children,' said Mr. Turveydrop, paternally encircling Caddy with his left arm, as she sat beside him, and putting his right hand gracefully on his hip, "'My son and daughter, your happiness shall be my care. I will watch over you. You shall always live with me—meaning, of course, I will always live with you. This house is henceforth as much yours as mine. Consider it your home. May you long live to share it with me.' The power of his deportment was such that they really were as much overcome with thankfulness as if, instead of quartering himself upon them for the rest of his life, he were making some munificent sacrifice in their favour. "'For myself and my children,' said Mr. Turveydrop, "'I am falling into the sear and yellow leaf, and it is impossible to say how long the last feeble traces of gentlemanly deportment may linger in this weaving and spinning age. But so long I will do my duty to society, and will show myself as usual about town. My wants are few and simple. My little apartment here, my few essentials for the toilet, 
my frugal morning meal and my little dinner will suffice i charge your dutiful affection with the supply of these requirements and i charge myself with all the rest they were overpowered afresh by his uncommon generosity my son said mr turveydrop for those little points in which you are deficient points of deportment which are born with a man which may be improved by cultivation but can never be originated you may still rely on me i have been faithful to my post since the days of his royal highness the prince regent and i will not desert it now no my son if you have ever contemplated your father's poor position with a feeling of pride you may rest assured that he will do nothing to tarnish it for yourself prince whose character is different we cannot be all alike nor is it advisable that we should work be industrious earn money and extend the connection as much as possible that you may depend i will do dear father with all my heart replied prince i have no doubt of it said mr turveydrop your qualities are not shining my dear child but they are steady and useful and to both of you my children i would merely observe in the spirit of a sainted woman on whose path i had the happiness of casting i believe some ray of light take care of the establishment take care of my simple wants and bless you both old mr turveydrop then became so very gallant in honour of the occasion that i told caddy we must really go to thavies inn at once if we were to go at all that day so we took our departure after a very loving farewell between caddy and her betrothed and during our walk she was so happy and so full of old mr turveydrop's praises that i would not have said a word in his disparagement for any consideration the house in thavies inn had bills in the windows announcing that it was to let and it looked dirtier and gloomier and ghastlier than ever the name of poor mr jellyby had appeared in the list of bankrupts but a day or two before and he was shut up in the dining-room with two gentlemen and a heap of blue bags account-books and papers making the most desperate endeavours to understand his affairs they appeared to me to be quite beyond his comprehension for when caddy took me into the dining-room by mistake and we came upon mr jellyby in his spectacles forlornly fenced into a corner by the great dining-table and the two gentlemen he seemed to have given up the whole thing and to be speechless and insensible going upstairs to mrs jellyby's room the children were all screaming in the kitchen and there was no servant to be seen we found that lady in the midst of a voluminous correspondence opening reading and sorting letters with a great accumulation of torn covers on the floor she was so preoccupied that at first she did not know me though she sat looking at me with that curious bright-eyed far-off look of hers ah miss summerson she said at last i was thinking of something so different i hope you are well i am happy to see you mr jarndyce and miss clare quite well i hoped in return that mr jellyby was quite well why not quite my dear said mrs jellyby in the calmest manner 
"'He has been unfortunate in his affairs, and is a little out of spirits. "'Happily for me I am so much engaged that I have no time to think about it. "'We have at the present moment one hundred and seventy families, Miss Summerson, "'averaging five persons in each, either gone or going to the left bank of the Niger.' "'I thought of the one family so near us, who were neither gone nor going to the left bank of the Niger, "'and wondered how she could be so placid.' "'You have brought Caddy back, I see,' observed Mrs. Jellyby, with a glance at her daughter. "'It has become quite a novelty to see her here. She has almost deserted her old employment, and in fact obliges me to employ a boy.' "'I'm sure, Ma,' began Caddy. "'Now you know, Caddy,' her mother mildly interposed, "'that I do employ a boy who is now at his dinner. What is the use of your contradicting?' "'I was not going to contradict, Ma,' returned Caddy. "'I was only going to say that surely you wouldn't have me be a mere drudge all my life.' "'I believe, my dear,' said Mrs. Jellyby, still opening her letters, casting her bright eyes smilingly over them, and sorting them as she spoke, "'that you have a business example before you and your mother. Besides, a mere drudge, if you had any sympathy with the destinies of the human race, it would raise you high above any such idea. But you have none. I have often told you, Caddy, you have no such sympathy.' "'Not if it's Africa, Ma, I have not.' "'Of course you have not. "'Now, if I were not happily so much engaged, Miss Summerson,' said Mrs. Jellyby, sweetly casting her eyes for a moment on me, and considering where to put the particular letter she had just opened, "'this would distress and disappoint me. "'But I have so much to think of in connection with Boreabula Gar, "'and it is so necessary I should concentrate myself that there is my remedy, you see.' As Caddy gave me a glance of entreaty, and as Mrs. Jellyby was looking far away into Africa, straight through my bonnet and head, I thought it a good opportunity to come to the subject of my visit, and to attract Mrs. Jellyby's attention. "'Perhaps,' I began, "'you will wonder what has brought me here to interrupt you.' "'I am always delighted to see Miss Summerson,' said Mrs. Jellyby, pursuing her employment with a placid smile, "'though I wish,' and she shook her head, she was more interested in the Boreabulan project. "'I have come with Caddy,' said I, "'because Caddy justly thinks she ought not to have a secret from her mother, "'and fancies I shall encourage and aid her, "'though I am sure I don't know how, in imparting one.' "'Caddy,' said Mrs. Jellyby, pausing for a moment in her occupation, "'and then serenely pursuing it after shaking her head, "'you are going to tell me some nonsense?' Caddy untied the strings of her bonnet, took her bonnet off, and letting it dangle on the floor by the strings, and crying heartily, said, "'Ma, I am engaged.' "'Oh, you ridiculous child!' observed Mrs. Jellyby, with an abstracted air, as she looked over the dispatch last opened. "'What a goose you are!' "'I am engaged, Ma,' sobbed Caddy, "'to young Mr. Turveydrop at the Academy.' "'And old Mr. Turveydrop, who is a very gentlemanly man indeed, has given his consent. "'And I beg and pray you'll give us yours, Ma, because I never could be happy without it. "'I never, never could,' sobbed Caddy, quite forgetful of her general complainings "'and of everything but her natural affection. "'You see again, Miss Summerson,' observed Mrs. Jellyby serenely, "'what a happiness it is to be so much occupied as I am, "'and to have this necessity for self-concentration that I have. "'Here is Caddy engaged to a dancing-master's son, "'mixed up with people who have no more sympathy "'with the destinies of the human race than she has herself. 
this too when mr quail one of the first philanthropists of our time has mentioned to me that he was really disposed to be interested in her ma i always hated and detested mr quail sobbed caddy 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 returned mrs jellyby opening another letter with the greatest complacency i have no doubt you did how could you do otherwise being totally destitute of the sympathies with which he overflows now if my public duties were not a favourite child to me if i were not occupied with large measures on a vast scale these petty details might grieve me very much miss summerson but can i permit the film of a silly proceeding on the part of caddy from whom i expect nothing else to interpose between me and the great african continent no no repeated mrs jellyby in a calm clear voice and with an agreeable smile as she opened more letters and sorted them no indeed i was so unprepared for the perfect coolness of this reception though i might have expected it that i did not know what to say caddy seemed equally at a loss mrs jellyby continued to open and sort letters and to repeat occasionally in quite a charming tone of voice and with a smile of perfect composure no indeed <laughs> i hope ma sobbed poor caddy at last you are not angry oh caddy you really are an absurd girl returned mrs jellyby to ask such questions after what i have said of the preoccupation of my mind and i hope ma you give us your consent and wish us well said caddy you are a nonsensical child to have done anything of this kind said mrs jellyby and a degenerate child when you might have devoted yourself to the great public measure but the step is taken and i have engaged a boy and there is no more to be said now pray caddy said mrs jellyby for caddy was kissing her don't delay me in my work but let me clear off this heavy batch of papers before the afternoon post comes in i thought i could not do better than take my leave i was detained for a moment by caddy saying you won't object to my bringing him to see you ma oh dear me caddy cried mrs jellyby who had relapsed into that distant contemplation have you begun again bring whom him ma caddy caddy said mrs jellyby quite weary of such little matters then you must bring him some evening which is not a parent society night or a branch night or a ramification night you must accommodate the visit to the demands upon my time my dear miss summerson it was very kind of you to come here to help out this silly chit good-bye when i tell you that i have fifty-eight new letters from the manufacturing families anxious to understand the details of the native and coffee cultivation question this morning i need not apologize for having very little leisure i was not surprised by caddy's being in low spirits when we went downstairs or by her sobbing afresh on my neck or by her saying she would far rather have been scolded than treated with such indifference or by her confiding to me that she was so poor in clothes that how she was ever to be married creditably she didn't know i gradually cheered her up by dwelling on the many things she would do for her unfortunate father and for peepy when she had a home of her own and finally we went downstairs into the damp dark kitchen where peepy and his little brothers and sisters were grovelling on the stone floor and where we had such a game of play with them that to prevent myself from being quite torn to pieces i was obliged to fall back on my fairy tales from time to time i heard loud voices in the parlour overhead and occasionally a violent tumbling about of the furniture 
The last effect, I am afraid, was caused by poor Mr. Jellyby's breaking away from the dining-table, and making rushes at the window, with the intention of throwing himself into the area whenever he made any new attempt to understand his affairs. As I rode quietly home at night after the day's bustle, I thought a good deal of Caddy's engagement, and felt confirmed in my hopes, in spite of the elder Mr. Turveydrop, that she would be the happier and better for it and if there seemed to be but a slender chance of her and her husband ever finding out what the model of deportment really was why that was all for the best too and who would wish them to be wiser i did not wish them to be any wiser and indeed was half ashamed of not entirely believing in him myself and i looked up at the stars and thought about travellers in distant countries and the stars they saw and hoped i might always be so blessed and happy as to be useful to some one in my small way they were so glad to see me when i got home as they always were that i could have sat down and cried for joy if that had not been a method of making myself disagreeable everybody in the house from the lowest to the highest showed me such a bright face of welcome and spoke so cheerily and was so happy to do anything for me that i suppose there never was such a fortunate little creature in the world we got into such a chatty state that night through ada and my guardian drawing me out to tell them all about caddy that i went on prose prose prosing for a length of time at last i got up to my own room quite red to think how i had been holding forth and then i heard a soft tap at my door so i said come in and there came in a pretty little girl neatly dressed in mourning who dropped a curtsey if you please miss said the little girl in a soft voice i am charlie why so you are said i stooping down in astonishment and giving her a kiss how glad am i to see you charlie if you please miss pursued charlie in the same soft voice i'm your maid charlie if you please miss i'm a present to you with mr jarndyce's love i sat down with my hand on charlie's neck and looked at charlie and oh miss says charlie clapping her hands with the tears starting down her dimpled cheeks tom's at school if you please and learning so good and little emma she's with mrs blinder miss have been took such care of and tom he would have been at school and emma she would have been left with mrs blinder and me i, I should have been here all a deal sooner miss only mr jarndyce thought that tom and emma and me had better get a little used to parting first we were so small oh don't cry if you please miss i can't help it charlie no miss nor i can't help it says charlie any if you please miss mr jarndyce's love and he thinks you like to teach me now and then and, and if you please tom and emma and me is to see each other once a month and i'm so happy and so thankful miss cried charlie with a heaving heart and i'll try to be such a good maid oh charlie dear never forget who did all this oh no miss i never will nor tom won't nor emma 
it was all you, miss.' "'I have known nothing of it. It was Mr. Jarndyce, Charlie.' Oh, "'Yes, miss. But it was all done for the love of you, and that you might be my mistress. If you please, miss, I am a little present with his love, and it was all done for the love of you. Me and Tom was to be sure to remember it.' Charlie dried her eyes and entered on her functions, going in her matronly little way about and about the room, and folding up everything she could lay her hands upon. Presently Charlie came creeping back to my side, and said, "'Oh, don't cry, if you please, miss!' And I said again, "'I can't help it, Charlie!' And Charlie said again, "'No, miss, nor I can't help it!' And so, after all, I did cry for joy indeed, and so did she. End of chapter 23「ティーオフ・ブリック・ハウス」This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson Bleak House by Charles Dickens Chapter twenty four An Appeal Case As soon as Richard and I had held the conversation of which I have given an account, Richard communicated the state of his mind to Mr. Jarndyce. I doubt if my guardian were altogether taken by surprise when he received the representation, though it caused him much uneasiness and disappointment. He and Richard were often closeted together late at night and early in the morning and passed whole days in london and had innumerable appointments with mr kenge and laboured through a quantity of disagreeable business while they were thus employed my guardian though he underwent considerable inconvenience from the state of the wind and rubbed his head so constantly that not a single hair upon it ever rested in its right place was as genial with ada and me as at any other time but maintained a steady reserve on these matters and as our utmost endeavours could only elicit from richard himself sweeping assurances that everything was going on capitally and that it really was all right at last our anxiety was not much relieved by him we learnt however as the time went on that a new application was made to the lord chancellor on richard's behalf as an infant and a ward and i don't know what and that there was a quantity of talking and that the Lord Chancellor described him in open court as a vexatious and capricious infant, and that the matter was adjourned and readjourned, and referred, and reported on, and petitioned about, until Richard began to doubt, as he told us, whether, if he entered the army at all, it would not be as a veteran of seventy or eighty years of age. At last an appointment was made for him to see the Lord Chancellor again in his private room, and there the lord chancellor very seriously reproved him for trifling with time and not knowing his mind a pretty good joke i think said richard from that quarter and at last it was settled that his application should be granted his name was entered at the horse-guards as an applicant for an ensign's commission the purchase money was deposited at an agent's and richard in his usual characteristic way plunged into a violent course of military study and got up at five o'clock every morning to practise the broadsword exercise thus vacation succeeded term and term succeeded vacation 
we sometimes heard of jarndyce and jarndyce as being in the paper or out of the paper or as being to be mentioned or as being to be spoken to and it came on and it went off richard who was now in a professor's house in london was able to be with us less frequently than before my guardian still maintained the same reserve and so time passed until the commission was obtained and richard received directions with it to join a regiment in ireland he arrived post-haste with the intelligence one evening and had a long conference with my guardian upwards of an hour elapsed before my guardian put his head into the room where ada and i were sitting and said come in my dears we went in and found richard whom we had last seen in high spirits leaning on the chimney-piece looking mortified and angry rick and i ada said mr jarndyce are not quite of one mind come come rick put a brighter face upon it you are very hard with me sir said richard the harder because you have been so considerate to me in all other respects and have done me kindnesses that i can never acknowledge and never could have been set right without you sir well well said mr jarndyce i want to set you more right yet i want to set you more right with yourself i hope you will excuse my saying sir returned richard in a fiery way but yet respectfully that i think i am the best judge about myself i hope you will excuse my saying my dear rick observed mr jarndyce with the sweetest cheerfulness and good humour that it's quite natural in you to think so but i don't think so i must do my duty rick or you could never care for me in cool blood and i hope you will always care for me cool and hot ada had turned so pale that he made her sit down in his reading-chair and sat beside her it's nothing my dear he said it's nothing rick and i have only had a friendly difference which we must state to you for you are the theme now you are afraid of what's coming i am not indeed cousin john replied ada with a smile if it is to come from you thank you my dear do you give me a minute's calm attention without looking at rick and little woman do you likewise my dear girl putting his hand on hers as it lay on the side of the easy chair you recollect the talk we had we four when the little woman told me of a little love affair it is not likely that either richard or i can ever forget your kindness that day cousin john i can never forget it said richard and i can never forget it said ada so much the easier what i have to say and so much the easier for us to agree returned my guardian his face irradiated by the gentleness and honour of his heart ada my bird you should know that rick has now chosen his profession for the last time all that he has of certainty will be expended when he is fully equipped he has exhausted his resources and is bound henceforth to the tree he has planted quite true that i have exhausted my present resources and i am quite content to know it but what i have of certainty sir said richard is not all i have 
"'Rick! Rick!' cried my guardian, with a sudden terror in his manner, and in an altered voice, and putting up his hands as if he would have stopped his ears. "'For the love of God, don't found a hope or expectation on the family curse. Whatever you do on this side the grave, never give one lingering glance towards the horrible phantom that has haunted us so many years. Better to borrow, better to beg, better to die.' We were all startled by the fervour of this warning. Richard bit his lip and held his breath, and glanced at me as if he felt, and knew that I felt too, how much he needed it. "'Ada, my dear,' said Mr. Jarndyce, recovering his cheerfulness, "'these are strong words of advice. But I live in Bleak House, and have seen a sight here. Enough of that.' All Richard had to start him in the race of life is ventured. I recommend to him, and you, for his sake and your own, that he should depart from us, with the understanding that there is no sort of contract between you. I must go further. I will be plain with you both. You were to confide freely in me, and I will confide freely in you. I ask you wholly to relinquish for the present any tie but your relationship. "'Better to say at once, sir,' returned Richard, "'that you renounce all confidence in me, and that you advise Ada to do the same.' "'Better to say nothing of the sort, Rick, because I don't mean it.' "'You think I have begun ill, sir,' retorted Richard. "'I have. I know.' "'How I hoped you would begin, and how go on,' "'I told you when we spoke of these things last,' said Mr. Jarndyce, in a cordial and encouraging manner. "'You have not made that beginning yet. But there is a time for all things, and yours is not gone by. Rather, it is just now fully come. Make a clear beginning altogether. You two, very young, my dears, are cousins. As yet, you are nothing more.' What more may come must come of being worked out, Rick, and no sooner. "'You are very hard with me, sir,' said Richard. "'Harder than I could have supposed you would be.' "'My dear boy,' said Mr. Jarndyce, "'I am harder with myself when I do anything that gives you pain. You have your remedy in your own hands. Ada,' It is better for him that he should be free, and there should be no youthful engagement between you. Rick, it is better for her, much better. You owe it to her. Come, each of you will do what is best for the other, if not what is best for yourselves. Why is it best, sir? returned Richard hastily. It was not when we opened our hearts to you. You did not say so then. I have had experience since. I don't blame you, Rick, but I have had experience since. You mean of me, sir? Well, yes, of both of you, said Mr. Jarndyce kindly. The time is not come for your standing pledged to one another. It is not right, and I must not recognize it. Come, come, my young cousins, begin afresh. Bygones shall be bygones, and a new page turned for you to write your lives in. Richard gave an anxious glance at Ada, 
but said nothing. "'I have avoided saying one word to either of you, or to Esther,' said Mr. Jarndyce, "'until now, in order that we might be open as the day, and all on equal terms. I now affectionately advise, I now most earnestly entreat, you two to part, as you came here. Leave all else to time, truth, and steadfastness. If you do otherwise, you will do wrong, and you will have made me do wrong in ever bringing you together." A long silence succeeded. "'Cousin Richard,' said Ada, then raising her blue eyes tenderly to his face, "'after what our cousin John has said, I think no choice is left us. Your mind may be quite at ease about me, for you will leave me here under his care, and will be sure that I can have nothing to wish for, quite sure if I guide myself by his advice. I—' "'I don't doubt, Cousin Richard,' said Ada, a little confused, "'that you are very fond of me, and I, I don't think you will fall in love with anybody else. But I should like you to consider well about it, too, as I should like you to be in all things very happy. You may trust in me, Cousin Richard. I'm not at all changeable, but I am not unreasonable, and should never blame you.' "'Even cousins may be sorry to part, and in truth I am very, very sorry, Richard, though I know it's for your welfare. I shall always think of you affectionately, and often talk of you with Esther, and—and perhaps you will sometimes think a little of me, cousin Richard.' "'So now,' said Ada, going up to him and giving him her trembling hand, "'we are only cousins again, Richard, for the time, perhaps.' and I pray for a blessing on my dear cousin, wherever he goes. It was strange to me that Richard should not be able to forgive my guardian for entertaining the very same opinion of him which he himself had expressed of himself in much stronger terms to me. But it was certainly the case. I observed with great regret that from this hour he never was as free and open with Mr. Jarndyce as he had been before. He had every reason given him to be so, but he was not. And solely on his side, an estrangement began to arise between them. In the business of preparation and equipment, he soon lost himself, and even his grief at parting from Ada, who remained in Hertfordshire while he, Mr. Jarndyce, and I went up to London for a week. He remembered her by fits and starts, even with bursts of tears, and at such times would confide to me the heaviest self-reproaches but in a few minutes he would recklessly conjure up some undefinable means by which they were both to be made rich and happy for ever, and would become as gay as possible. It was a busy time, and I trotted about with him all day long, buying a variety of things of which he stood in need. Of the things he would have bought, if he had been left to his own ways, I say nothing. He was perfectly confidential with me, and often talked so sensibly and feelingly about his faults and his vigorous resolutions, and dwelt so much upon the encouragement he derived from these conversations, that I could never have been tired if I had tried. They used in that week to come backward and forward to our lodging to fence with Richard, a person who had formerly been a cavalry soldier. He was a fine, bluff-looking man of a frank free bearing, with whom Richard had practised for some months. 
I heard so much about him, not only from Richard, but from my guardian, too, that I was purposely in the room with my work one morning after breakfast, when he came in. "'Good morning, Mr. George,' said my guardian, who happened to be alone with me. "'Mr. Carstone will be here directly. Meanwhile, Miss Summerson is very happy to see you, I know. Sit down.' He sat down, a little disconcerted by my presence, I thought, and without looking at me, drew his heavy sunburnt hand across and across his upper lip. "'You are as punctual as the sun,' said Mr. Jarndyce. "'Military time, sir,' he replied. "'Force of habit. A mere habit in me, sir. I'm not at all business-like.' "'Yet you have a large establishment, too, I am told,' said Mr. Jarndyce. "'Not much of one, sir. I keep a shooting gallery, but not much of a one.' "'And what kind of a shot, and what kind of a swordsman, do you make of Mr. Carstone?' said my guardian. Uh, "'Pretty good, sir,' he replied, folding his arms about his broad chest, and looking very large. "'If Mr. Carstone was to give his full mind to it, he would come out very good.' "'But he don't, I suppose,' said my guardian. "'He did at first, sir, but not afterwards. Not his full mind. Perhaps he has something else upon it.' "'Some young lady, perhaps?' His bright dark eyes glanced at me for the first time. <laughs> "'He has not me upon his mind, I assure you, Mr. George,' said I, laughing, though you seem to suspect me. He reddened a little through his brown, and made me a trooper's bow. "'No offence, I hope, miss. I am one of the roughs.' "'Not at all,' said I. "'I take it as a compliment.' If he had not looked at me before— he looked at me now in three or four quick, successive glances. "'I beg your pardon, sir,' he said to my guardian, with a manly kind of diffidence. "'But you did me the honour to mention the young lady's name.' "'Miss Summerson.' "'Miss Summerson.' He repeated, and looked at me again. "'Do you know the name?' I asked. "'No, miss. To my knowledge I never heard it. I thought I had seen you somewhere.' "'I think not.' I returned, raising my head from my work to look at him, and there was something so genuine in his speech and manner that I was glad of the opportunity. "'I remember faces very well.' "'So do I, miss,' he returned, meeting my look with the fullness of his dark eyes and broad forehead. <clears throat> "'What set me off now upon that?' His once more reddening through his brown, and being disconcerted by his efforts to remember the association, brought my guardian to his relief. "'Have you many pupils, Mr. George?' "'They vary in their number, sir. Mostly they're but a small lot to live by.' "'And what classes of chance people come to practice at your gallery?' "'All sorts, sir. Natives and foreigners. Gentlemen to apprentices. I have had Frenchwomen come before now, and show themselves dabs at pistol-shooting. "'Mad people, out of number, of course, but they go everywhere where the doors stand open. "'People don't come with grudges and schemes of finishing their practice with live targets, I hope,' said my guardian, smiling. "'Not much of that, sir, though that has happened. Mostly they come for skill, or idleness. Six of one, half a dozen of the other. I beg your pardon,' said Mr. George, sitting stiffly upright and squaring an elbow on each knee. "'But I believe you're a chancery suitor, if I've heard correct.' "'I am sorry to say I am,' 
"'I have had one of your compatriots in my time, sir.' "'A chancery suitor?' returned my guardian. "'How was that?' "'Why, the man was so badgered and worried, tortured by being knocked about from post to pillar and from pillar to post,' said Mr. George, "'that he got out of sorts. I don't believe he had any idea of taking aim at anybody, but he was in that condition of resentment and violence that he would come and pay for fifty shots and fire away till he was red-hot. One day I said to him, when there was nobody by, and he'd been talking to me angrily about his wrongs, "'If this practice is a safety-valve, comrade,' "'Well and good. But I don't altogether like your being so bent upon it in your present state of mind. I'd rather you took to something else. I was on my guard for a blow. He was that passionate. But he received it in very good part, and left off directly. We shook hands, and struck up a sort of friendship.' "'What was that man?' asked my guardian, in a new tone of interest. "'Why?' "'He began by being a small Shropshire farmer before they made a baited bull of him,' said Mr. George. "'Was his name Gridley?' "'It was, sir.' Mr. George directed another succession of quick, bright glances at me, as my guardian and I exchanged a word or two of surprise at the coincidence, and I therefore explained to him how we knew the name. He made me another of his soldierly bows in acknowledgment of what he called my condescension. "'I don't know.' he said as he looked at me. "'What it is, it sets me off again, but bosh! What's my head running against?' He passed one of his heavy hands over his crisp dark hair, as if to sweep the broken thoughts out of his mind, and sat a little forward, with one arm akimbo and the other resting on his leg, looking in a brown study at the ground. "'I am sorry to learn that the same state of mind has got this Gridley into new troubles, and that he is in hiding.' said my guardian. "'So I am told, sir,' returned Mr. George, still musing and looking on the ground. "'So I am told. You don't know where?' "'No, sir,' returned the trooper, lifting up his eyes and coming out of his reverie. "'I can't say anything about him. He will be worn out soon, I expect. You may file a strong man's heart away for a good many years, but it will tell all of a sudden at last.' Richard's entrance stopped the conversation. Mr. George rose, made me another of his soldierly bows, wished my guardian a good day, and strode heavily out of the room. This was the morning of the day appointed for Richard's departure. We had no more purchases to make now. I had completed all his packing early in the afternoon, and our time was disengaged until night, when he was to go to Liverpool for Holyhead. Jarndyce and Jarndyce being again expected to come on that day, Richard proposed to me that we should go down to the court and hear what passed. As it was his last day, and he was eager to go, and I had never been there, I gave my consent, and we walked down to Westminster, where the court was then sitting. We beguiled the way with arrangements concerning the letters that Richard was to write to me, and the letters that I was to write to him, and with a great many hopeful projects. My guardian knew where we were going, and therefore was not with us. When we came to the court, there was the Lord Chancellor, the same whom I had seen in his private room in Lincoln's Inn, sitting in great state and gravity on the bench, with the mace and seals on a red table below him, and an immense flat nosegay, like a little garden, which centred the whole court. Below the table again was a long row of solicitors, with bundles of papers on their matting at their feet, and then there were the gentlemen of the bar, 
in wigs and gowns, some awake and some asleep, and one talking, and nobody paying much attention to what he said. The Lord Chancellor leaned back in his very easy chair, with his elbow on the cushioned arm, and his forehead resting on his hand. Some of those who were present dozed, some read the newspapers, some walked about or whispered in groups, all seemed perfectly at their ease, by no means in a hurry, very unconcerned, and extremely comfortable. To see everything going on so smoothly, and to think of the roughness of the suitors' lives and deaths, to see all that full dress and ceremony, and to think of the waste and want and beggared misery it represented, to consider that while the sickness of hope deferred was raging in so many hearts, this polite show went calmly on from day to day and year to year, in such good order and composure, to behold the Lord Chancellor and the whole array of practitioners under him, looking at one another and at the spectators, as if nobody had ever heard that all over England the name in which they were assembled was a bitter jest, was held in universal horror, contempt, and indignation, was known for something so flagrant and bad, that little short of a miracle could bring any good out of it to any one. This was so curious and self-contradictory to me, who had no experience of it, that it was at first incredible, and I could not comprehend it. I sat where Richard put me, and tried to listen, and looked about me, but there seemed to be no reality in the whole scene, except poor little Miss Flight, the madwoman, standing on a bench, and nodding at it. Miss Flight soon espied us, and came to where we sat. She gave me a gracious welcome to her domain, and indicated, with much gratification and pride, its principal attractions. Mr. Kenge also came to speak to us, and did the honours of the place in much the same way, with the bland modesty of a proprietor. It was not a very good day for a visit, he said. He would have preferred the first day of term, but it was imposing. It was imposing. When we had been there half an hour or so, the case in progress, if I may use a phrase so ridiculous in such a connection, seemed to die out of its own vapidity, without coming, or being by anybody expected to come, to any result. The Lord Chancellor then threw down a bundle of papers from his desk to the gentleman below him, and somebody said, "'John Dice and John Dice.' Upon this there was a buzz, and a laugh, and a general withdrawal of the bystanders, and a bringing in of great heaps and piles and bags and bags full of papers. I think it came on for further directions, about some bill of costs, to the best of my understanding, which was confused enough, but I counted twenty-three gentlemen in wigs who said they were in it, and none of them appeared to understand it much better than I. They chatted about it with the Lord Chancellor, and contradicted and explained among themselves, and some of them said it was this way, and some of them said it was that way and some of them jocosely proposed to read huge volumes of affidavits, and there was more buzzing and laughing, and everybody concerned was in a state of idle entertainment, and nothing could be made of it by anybody. After an hour or so of this, and a good many speeches being begun and cut short, it was referred back for the present, as Mr. Kenge said, and the papers were bundled up again before the clerks had finished bringing them in. I glanced at Richard on the termination of these hopeless proceedings, and was shocked to see the worn look of his handsome young face. "'It can't last for ever, Dame Durden. Better luck next time,' was all he said. I had seen Mr. Guppy bringing in papers and arranging them for Mr. Kenge, and he had seen me, and made me a forlorn bow, which rendered me desirous to get out of the court. 
Richard had given me his arm, and was taking me away, when Mr. Guppy came up. "'I beg your pardon, Mr. Carstone,' said he in a whisper, "'and Miss Summerson's also. But there's a lady here, a friend of mine, who knows her, and wishes to have the pleasure of shaking hands.' As he spoke, I saw before me, as if she had started into bodily shape from my remembrance, Mrs. Rachel, of my godmother's house. "'How do you do, Esther?' said she. "'Do you recollect me?' I gave her my hand, and told her yes, and that she was very little altered. "'I wonder you remember those times, Esther,' she returned with her old asperity. "'They are changed now. Well, I am glad to see you. I am glad you are not too proud to know me.' But indeed she seemed disappointed that I was not. "'Proud, Mrs. Rachel,' I remonstrated. "'I am married, Esther.' she returned, coldly correcting me, and am Mrs. Chadband. Well, I wish you good day, and I hope you'll do well. Mr. Guppy, who had been attentive to this short dialogue, heaved a sigh in my ear, and elbowed his own and Mrs. Rachel's way through the confused little crowd of people coming in and going out, which we were in the midst of, and which the change in the business had brought together. Richard and I were making our way through it, and I was yet in the first chill of the late unexpected recognition, when I saw coming towards us, but not seeing us, no less a person than Mr. George. He made nothing of the people about him as he tramped on, staring over their heads into the body of the court. "'George?' said Richard, as I called his attention to him. "'You're well met, sir,' he returned. "'And you, miss. Could you point a person out for me, I want? I don't understand these places.' Turning as he spoke, and making an easy way for us, he stopped when we were out of the press in a corner behind a great red curtain. "'There is a little cracked old woman,' he began, "'that—' I put up my finger, for Miss Flight was close by me, having kept beside me all the time, and having called the attention of several of her legal acquaintance to me, as I had overheard to my confusion, by whispering in their ears, "'Hush! Fitz Jarndyce on my left! <clears throat> said Mr. George. "'You remember, miss, that we passed some conversation on a certain man this morning?' Goodly, in a low whisper behind his hand. "'Yes,' I said. "'He is hiding at my place. I couldn't mention it. Hadn't his authority. He is on his last march, miss, and has a whim to see her. He says they can feel for one another, and she has been almost as good as a friend to him here. I came down to look for her. For when I sat by Gridley this afternoon, I seemed to hear the roll of the muffled drums. "'Shall I tell her?' said I. "'Would you be so good?' He returned, with a glance of something like apprehension at Miss Flight. "'It's a providence I met you, miss. I doubt if I should have known how to get on with that lady.' And he put one hand in his breast, and stood upright in a martial attitude, as I informed little Miss Flight, in her ear, of the purport of his kind errand. "'My angry friend from Shropshire, almost as celebrated as myself,' she exclaimed. "'Now, really, my dear, I will wait upon him with the greatest pleasure.' "'He is living concealed at Mr. George's,' said I. "'Hush! This is Mr. George.' "'Indeed,' returned Miss Flight. "'Very proud to have the honour. "'A military man, my dear, you know, a perfect general.' 
She whispered to me, "'Poor Miss Flight deemed it necessary to be so courtly and polite as a mark of her respect for the army, and to curtsy so very often that it was no easy matter to get her out of the court. When this was at last done, and addressing Mr. George as General, she gave him her arm to the great entertainment of some idlers who were looking on. He was so discomposed and begged me so respectfully not to desert him that I could not make up my mind to do it, especially as Miss Flight was always tractable with me, and as she too said, "'Fitz Jarndyce, my dear, you will accompany us, of course.' As Richard seemed quite willing, and even anxious that we should see them safely to their destination, we agreed to do so. And as Mr. George informed us that Gridley's mind had run on Mr. Jarndyce all the afternoon, after hearing of their interview in the morning, I wrote a hasty note in pencil to my guardian to say where we were gone and why. Mr. George sealed it at a coffee-house, that it might lead to no discovery, and we sent it off by a ticket-porter. We then took a hackney-coach, and drove away to the neighbourhood of Leicester Square. We walked through some narrow courts, for which Mr. George apologised, and soon came to the shooting-gallery, the door of which was closed. As he pulled a bell-handle, which hung by a chain to the door-post, a very respectable old gentleman with grey hair, wearing spectacles, and dressed in a black spencer and gaiters, and a broad-brimmed hat, and carrying a large gold-beaded cane, addressed him. "'I ask your pardon, my good friend,' said he. "'What is this George's shooting-gallery?' "'It is, sir,' returned Mr. George, glancing up at the great letters in which that inscription was painted on the whitewashed wall. "'Oh, to be sure,' said the old gentleman, following his eyes. "'Thank you. Have you rung the bell?' "'My name is George, sir, and I have rung the bell.' "'Oh, indeed,' said the old gentleman. "'Your name is George. Then I am here as soon as you, you see. You came for me, no doubt.' "'No, sir. You have the advantage of me.' "'Oh, indeed,' said the old gentleman. "'Then it was your young man who came for me. I am a physician.' and was requested, five minutes ago, to come and visit a sick man at George's shooting-gallery. "'The muffled drums,' said Mr. George, turning to Richard and me, and gravely shaking his head. "'It's quite correct, sir. Will you please to walk in?' The door being at that moment opened by a very singular-looking little man, in a green baize cap and apron, whose face and hands and dress were blackened all over, we passed along a dreary passage into a large building with bare brick walls, where there were targets and guns and swords and other things of that kind. When we had all arrived here, the physician stopped, and taking off his hat, appeared to vanish by magic, and to leave another and quite a different man in his place. "'Now look here, George,' said the man, turning quickly around upon him, and tapping him on the breast with a large forefinger. "'You know me?' and I know you. You're a man of the world, and I'm a man of the world. My name's Bucket, as you are aware, and I've got a peace warrant against Gridley. You've kept him out of the way a long time, and you've been artful in it, and it does you credit. Mr. George, looking hard at him, bit his lip and shook his head. Now, George, said the other, keeping close to him, you're a sensible man, and a well-conducted man. "'That's what you are, beyond a doubt. "'And mind you, 
I don't talk to you as a common character, because you have served your country, and you know that, when duty calls, we must obey. Consequently, you're very far from wanting to give trouble. If I required assistance, you'd assist me. That's what you'd do. Phil Squad, don't you go sidling round the gallery like that. The dirty little man was shuffling about with his shoulder against the wall, and his eyes on the intruder in a manner that looked threatening. "'Because I know you, and won't have it.' "'Phil,' said Mr. George. "'Yes, Governor. "'Be quiet.' The little man, with a low growl, stood still. "'Ladies and gentlemen,' said Mr. Bucket, "'you'll excuse anything that may appear to be disagreeable in this.' "'for my name's Inspector Bucket of the Detective, "'and I have a duty to perform. "'George, I know where my man is, "'because I was on the roof last night "'and saw him through the skylight, "'and you along with him. "'He is in there, you know.' "'Pointing. "'That's where he is, on a sofa. "'Now, I must see my man, "'and I must tell my man to consider himself in custody. "'But you know me.' "'and you know I don't want to take any uncomfortable measures. "'You give me your word, as from one man to another, "'and an old soldier, mind you, likewise, "'that it's honourable between us two, "'and I'll accommodate you to the utmost of my power.' "'I give it,' was the reply. "'But it wasn't handsome in you, Mr. Bucket.' "'Gammon, George! Not handsome!' said Mr. Bucket, tapping him on his broad breast again, and shaking hands with him. "'I don't say it wasn't handsome in you to keep my man so close, do I? Be equally good-tempered to me, old boy. Old William Tell, old Shaw, the life-guardsman, why, he's a model of the old British army in himself, ladies and gentlemen. I'd give a fifty-pun note to be such a figure of a man.' The affair being brought to this head, Mr. George, after a little consideration, proposed to go in first to his comrade, as he called him, taking Miss Flight with him. Mr. Bucket agreeing, they went away to the farther end of the gallery, leaving us sitting and standing by a table covered with guns. Mr. Bucket took this opportunity of entering into a little light conversation, asking me if I were afraid of firearms, as most young ladies were, asking Richard if he were a good shot, asking Phil's squad, which he considered the best of those rifles, and what it might be worth first-hand, telling him in return that it was a pity he ever gave way to his temper, for he was naturally so amiable that he might have been a young woman, and making himself generally agreeable. After a time he followed us to the further end of the gallery, and Richard and I were going quietly away when Mr. George came after us. He said that if we had no objection to see his comrade, he would take a visit from us very kindly. The words had hardly passed his lips, when the bell was rung, and my guardian appeared. On the chance, he slightly observed, of being able to do any little thing for a poor fellow involved in the same misfortune as himself. We all four went back together, and went into the place where Gridley was. It was a bare room, partitioned off from the gallery with unpainted wood. As the screening was not more than eight or ten feet high, and only enclosed the sides, not the top, the rafters of the high gallery roof were overhead, and the skylight through which Mr. Bucket had looked down. The sun was low, near setting, 
and its light came redly in above, without descending to the ground. Upon a plain canvas-covered sofa lay the man from Shropshire, dressed much as we had seen him last, but so changed that at first I recognised no likeness in his colourless face to what I recollected. He had been still writing in his hiding-place, and still dwelling on his grievances, hour after hour. A table and some shelves were covered with manuscript papers and with worn pens and a medley of such tokens. Touchingly and awfully drawn together, he and the little madwoman were side by side, and, as it were, alone. She sat on a chair holding his hand, and none of us went close to them. His voice had faded, with the old expression of his face, with his strength, with his anger, with his resistance to the wrongs that had at last subdued him. The faintest shadow of an object full of form and colour is such a picture of it as he was, of the man from Shropshire, whom we had spoken with before. He inclined his head to Richard and me, and spoke to my guardian. "'Mr. Jarndyce, it is very kind of you to come to see me. I am not long to be seen, I think. I am very glad to take your hand, sir. You are a good man, superior to injustice, and God knows I honour you. They shook hands earnestly, and my guardian said some words of comfort to him. It may seem strange to you, sir, returned Gridley. I should not have liked to see you, if this had been the first time of our meeting. But you know, I made a fight for it. You know, I stood up with my single hand against them all. You know, I told them the truth to the last, and told them what they were, and what they had done to me. So, I don't mind your seeing me, this wreck. You have been courageous with them many and many a time, returned my guardian. Sir, I have been, with a faint smile. I told you what would come of it when I ceased to be so. And see here, look at us, look at us. He drew the hand Miss Flight held through her arm, and brought her something nearer to him. This ends it. Of all my old associations, of all my old pursuits and hopes, of all the living and the dead world, this one poor soul alone comes natural to me, and I am fit for. There is a tie of many suffering years between us two, and it is the only tie I ever had on earth that Chancery has not broken. Accept my blessing, Gridley, said Miss Flight in tears. Accept my blessing. I thought boastfully that they never could break my heart. Mr. Jarndyce, I was resolved that they should not. I did believe that I could, 
and would charge them with being the mockery they were until i died of some bodily disorder but i am worn out how long i have been wearing out i don't know i seemed to break down in an hour i hope they may never come to hear of it i hope everybody here will lead them to believe that i died defying them consistently and perseveringly as i did through so many years here mr bucket who was sitting in a corner by the door good-naturedly offered such consolation as he could administer come come he said from his corner don't go on in that way mr gridley you're only a little low we're all of us a little low sometimes i am hold up hold up you lose your temper with the whole round of em again and again and i shall take you on a score of warrants yet if i have luck he only shook his head don't shake your head said mr bucket nod it that's what i want to see you do why lord bless your soul what times we have had together haven't i seen you in the fleet over and over again for contempt haven't i come into court twenty afternoons for no other purpose than to see you pin the chancellor like a bulldog don't you remember when you first began to threaten the lawyers and the peace was sworn against you two or three times a week ask the little old lady there she's been always present hold up mr gridley hold up sir what are you going to do about him asked george in a low voice i don't know yet said bucket in the same tone then resuming his encouragement he pursued aloud worn out mr gridley after dodging me for all these weeks and forcing me to climb the roof here like a tomcat and to come to see you as a doctor that ain't like being worn out i should think not now i tell you what you want excitement you know to keep you up that's what you want you're used to it and you can't do without it i couldn't myself very well then here's this warrant got by mr tulkinghorn of lincoln's inn fields and banked into half a dozen counties since what you say to coming along with me upon this warrant and having a good angry argument before the magistrates it'll do you good it'll freshen you up get you into training for another turn at the chancellor give in why i am surprised to hear a man of your energy talking of giving in you mustn't do that you're half the fun of the fair in the court of chancery george you lend mr gridley a hand and let's see now whether he won't be better up than down he is very weak said the trooper in a low voice is he returned bucket anxiously i only want to rouse him i don't like to see an old acquaintance giving in like this it would cheer him up more than anything if i could make him a little waxy with me he's welcome to drop into me right and left if he likes i shall never take advantage of it the roof rang with a scream from miss flight which still rings in my ears oh no gridley she cried as he fell heavily and calmly back from before her 
not without my blessing after so many years the sun was down the light had gradually stolen from the roof and the shadow had crept upward but to me the shadow of that pair one living and one dead fell heavier on richard's departure than the darkness of the darkest night and through richard's farewell words i heard it echoed of all my old associations of all my old pursuits and hopes of all the living and the dead world this one poor soul alone comes natural to me and i am fit for there is a tie of many suffering years between us two and it is the only tie i ever had on earth the chancery is not broken End of chapter 24chapter 25 of bleak house this librivox recording is in the public domain recorded by mill nicholson bleak house by charles dickens chapter 25 mrs snagsby sees it all there is disquietude in cook's court cursitor street black suspicion hides in that peaceful region the mass of cook's courtiers are in their usual state of mind no better and no worse but mr snagsby is changed and his little woman knows it for tom all alones and lincoln's inn fields persist in harnessing themselves a pair of ungovernable coursers to the chariot of mr snagsby's imagination and mr bucket drives and the passengers are joe and mr tulkinghorn and the complete equipage whirls through the law stationary business at wild speed all round the clock even in the little front kitchen where the family meals are taken it rattles away at a smoking pace from the dinner-table when mr snagsby pauses in carving the first slice of the leg of mutton baked with potatoes and stares at the kitchen wall mr snagsby cannot make out what it is that he has had to do with something is wrong somewhere but what something what may come of it to whom when and from which unthought-of and unheard-of quarter is the puzzle of his life his remote impressions of the robes and coronets the stars and garters that sparkle through the surface dust of mr tulkinghorn's chambers his veneration for the mysteries presided over by that best and closest of his customers whom all the inns of court all chancery lane and all the legal neighbourhood agree to hold in awe his remembrance of detective mr bucket with his forefinger and his confidential manner impossible to be evaded or declined persuade him that he is a party to some dangerous secret without knowing what it is and it is the fearful peculiarity of this condition that at any hour of his daily life at any opening of the shop-door at any pull of the bell at any entrance of a messenger or any delivery of a letter the secret may take air and fire explode and blow up mr bucket only knows whom for which reason whenever a man unknown comes into the shop as many men unknown do and says is mr snagsby in or worse to that innocent effect 
Mr. Snagsby's heart knocks hard at his guilty breast. He undergoes so much from such inquiries that when they are made by boys, he revenges himself by flipping at their ears over the counter, and asking the young dogs what they mean by it, and why they can't speak out at once. More impracticable men and boys persist in walking into Mr. Snagsby's sleep, and terrifying him with unaccountable questions, so that often when the cock at the little dairy in Cursitor Street breaks out in his usual absurd way about the morning, Mr. Snagsby finds himself in a crisis of nightmare, with this little woman shaking him and saying, "'What's the matter with the man?' The little woman herself is not the least item in his difficulty. To know that he is always keeping a secret from her, that he has under all circumstances to conceal and hold fast a tender double tooth, which her sharpness is ever ready to twist out of his head, gives Mr. Snagsby, in her dentistical presence, much of the air of a dog who has a reservation from his master, and will look anywhere rather than meet his eye. These various signs and tokens, marked by the little woman, are not lost upon her. They impel her to say, "'Snagsby has something on his mind.' and thus suspicion gets into Cook's Court, Cursitor Street. From suspicion to jealousy, Mrs. Snagsby finds the road as natural and short as from Cook's Court to Chancery Lane, and thus jealousy gets into Cook's Court, Cursitor Street. Once there, and it was always lurking thereabout, it is very active and nimble in Mrs. Snagsby's breast, prompting her to nocturnal examinations of Mr. Snagsby's pockets, to secret perusals of Mr. Snagsby's letters, to private researches in the day-book and ledger, till, cash-box, and iron safe, to watchings at windows, listenings behind doors, and a general putting of this and that together by the wrong end. Mrs. Snagsby is so perpetually on the alert that the house becomes ghostly with creaking boards and rustling garments. The prentices think somebody may have been murdered there in bygone times. Guster holds certain loose atoms of an idea— picked up a tooting, where they were found floating among the orphans, that there is buried money underneath the cellar, guarded by an old man with a white beard, who cannot get out for seven thousand years, because he said the Lord's Prayer backwards. "'Who was Nimrod?' Mrs. Snagsby repeatedly inquires of herself. "'Who was that lady, that creature, and who is that boy?' Now, Nimrod, being as dead as the mighty hunter, whose name Mrs. Snagsby has appropriated, and the lady being unproducible, she directs her mental eye for the present with redoubled vigilance to the boy. "'And who,' quoth Mrs. Snagsby for the thousand and first time, "'is that boy? Who is that?' And there Mrs. Snagsby is seized with an inspiration. He has no respect for Mr. Chadband, no, to be sure— and he wouldn't have, of course. Naturally, he wouldn't under those contagious circumstances. He was invited and appointed by Mr. Chadband. Why, Mrs. Snagsby heard it herself with her own ears, to come back, and be told where he was to go, to be addressed by Mr. Chadband. And he never came. Why did he never come? Because he was told not to come. Who told him not to come? Who? Ha, ha, ha! Mrs. Snagsby sees it all. But happily, and Mrs. Snagsby tightly shakes her head and tightly smiles, that boy was met by Mr. Chadband yesterday in the streets, and that boy, as affording a subject which Mr. Chadband desires to improve for the spiritual delight of a select congregation, was seized by Mr. Chadband, and threatened with being delivered over to the police, unless he showed the reverend gentleman where he lived, 
and unless he entered into and fulfilled an undertaking to appear in cook's court to-morrow night to-morrow night mrs snagsby repeats for mere emphasis with another tight smile and another tight shake of her head and to-morrow night that boy will be here and to-morrow night mrs snagsby will have her eye upon him and upon some one else and oh you may walk a long while in your secret ways says mrs snagsby with haughtiness and scorn but you can't blind me mrs snagsby sounds no timbrel in anybody's ears but holds her purpose quietly and keeps her counsel to-morrow comes the savoury preparations for the oil trade come the evening comes comes mr snagsby in his black coat come the chadbands come when the gorging vessel is replete the prentices and guster to be edified comes at last with his slouching head and his shuffle backward and his shuffle forward and his shuffle to the right and his shuffle to the left and his bit of fur cap in his muddy hand which he picks as if it were some mangy bird he had caught and was plucking before eating raw joe the very very tough subject mr chadband is to improve mrs snagsby screws a watchful glance on joe as he is brought into the little drawing-room by guster he looks at mr snagsby the moment he comes in aha why does he look at mr snagsby mr snagsby looks at him why should he do that but that mrs snagsby sees it all why else should that look pass between them why else should mr snagsby be confused and cough a signal cough behind his hand it is as clear as crystal that mr snagsby is that boy's father peace my friends says chadband rising and wiping the oily exudations from his reverend visage peace be with us my friends why with us because with his fat smile it cannot be against us because it must be for us because it is not hardening because it is softening because it does not make our war like the hawk but comes home unto us like the dove therefore my friends peace be with us my human boy come forward stretching forth his flabby paw mr chadband lays the same on joe's arm and considers where to station him joe very doubtful of his reverend friend's intentions and not at all clear but that something practical and painful is going to be done to him mutters you let me alone i never said nothing to you you let me alone no my young friend says chadband smoothly i will not let you alone and why because i am a harvest labourer because i am a toiler and a moiler because you are delivered over unto me and are become as a precious instrument in my hands my friends may i so employ this instrument as to use it to your advantage to your profit to your gain to your welfare to your enrichment my young friend sit upon this stool joe apparently possessed by an impression that the reverend gentleman wants to cut his hair shields his head with both arms and has got into the required position with great difficulty and every possible manifestation of reluctance when he is at last adjusted like a lay figure mr chadband retiring behind the table holds up his bear's paw and says my friends this is the signal for a general settlement of the audience the prentices giggle internally and nudge each other 
Guster falls into a staring and vacant state, compounded of a stunned admiration of Mr. Chadband, and pity for the friendless outcast whose condition touches her nearly. Mrs. Nagsby silently lays trains of gunpowder. Mrs. Chadband composes herself grimly by the fire, and warms her knees, finding that sensation favourable to the reception of eloquence. It happens that Mr. Chadband has a pulpit habit of fixing some member of his congregation with his eye, and fatly arguing his points with that particular person, who is understood to be expected to be moved to an occasional grunt, groan, gasp, or other audible expression of inward working, which expression of inward working, being echoed by some elderly lady in the next pew, and so communicated like a game of forfeits through a circle of the more fermentable sinners present, serves the purpose of parliamentary cheering, and gets Mr. Chadband's steam up. From mere force of habit, Mr. Chadband is saying, "'My friends!' has rested his eye on Mr. Snagsby and proceeds to make that ill-starred stationer, already sufficiently confused, the immediate recipient of his discourse. "'We have here among us, my friends,' says Chadband, "'a Gentile and a heathen, a dweller in the tents of Tom All-Alones, and a mover-on upon the surface of the earth. We have here among us, my friends,' and Mr. Chadband, untwisting the point with his dirty thumbnail, bestows an oily smile on Mr. Snagsby, signifying that he will throw him an argumentative backfall presently, if he be not already down. "'A brother and a boy, devoid of parents, devoid of relations, devoid of flocks and herds, devoid of gold and silver and of precious stones, now, my friends—' why do i say he is devoid of these possessions why why is he mr chadband states the question as if he were propounding an entirely new riddle of much ingenuity and merit to mr snagsby and entreating him not to give it up mr snagsby greatly perplexed by the mysterious look he received just now from his little woman at about the period when mr chadband mentioned the word parents is tempted into modestly remarking <clears throat> "'I don't know, I'm sure, sir.' On which interruption Mrs. Chadband glares, and Mrs. Snagsby says, "'For shame!' "'I hear a voice,' says Chadband. "'Is it a still, small voice, my friends? "'I fear not, though I fain would hope so.' "'Ah!' from Mrs. Snagsby. "'Which says... I don't know. Then I will tell you why. I say this brother present, here among us, is devoid of parents, devoid of relations, devoid of flocks and herds, devoid of gold, of silver, and of precious stones, because he is devoid of the light that shines in upon some of us. What is that light? What is it? I ask you, what is that light? Mr. Chadband draws back his head and pauses, but Mr. Snagsby is not to be lured on to his destruction again. Mr. Chadband, leaning forward over the table, pierces what he has got to follow directly into Mr. Snagsby, with the thumbnail already mentioned. It is, says Chadband, the ray of rays, 
the sun of suns the moon of moons the star of stars it is the light of teruth mr chadband draws himself up again and looks triumphantly at mr snagsby as if he would be glad to know how he feels after that of teruth says mr chadband hitting him again say not to me that it is not the lamp of lamps i say to you it is i say to you a million of times over it is it is i say to you that i will proclaim it to you whether you like it or not nay that the less you like it the more i will proclaim it to you with a speaking trumpet i say to you that if you rear yourself against it you shall fall you shall be bruised you shall be battered you shall be flawed you shall be smashed the present effect of this flight of oratory much admired for its general power by mr chadband's followers being not only to make mr chadband unpleasantly warm but to represent the innocent mr snagsby in the light of a determined enemy to virtue with a forehead of brass and a heart of adamant that unfortunate tradesman becomes yet more disconcerted and is in a very advanced state of low spirits and false position when mr chadband accidentally finishes him my friends he resumes after dabbing his fat head for some time and it smokes to such an extent that he seems to light his pocket-handkerchief at it which smokes too after every dab to pursue the subject we are endeavouring with our lowly gifts to improve let us in a spirit of love inquire what is it that teruth to which i have alluded for my young friends suddenly addressing the prentices and guster to their consternation if i am told by the doctor that calomel or castor oil is good for me i may naturally ask what is calomel and what is castor oil i may wish to be informed of that before i doze myself with either or with both now my young friends what is this truth then firstly in a spirit of love what is the common sort of teruth the working clothes the everyday wear my young friends is it deception ah for mrs snagsby is it suppression a shiver in the negative from mrs snagsby is it reservation a shake of the head from mrs snagsby very long and very tight no my friends it is neither of these neither of these names belongs to it when this young heathen now among us who is now my friends asleep the seal of indifference and perdition being set upon his eyelids but do not wake him for it is right that i should have to wrestle and to combat and to struggle and to conquer for his sake when this young hardened heathen told us the story of a cock and of a bull and of a lady and of a sovereign was that the teruth no or if it was partly was it wholly and entirely no my friends no if mr snagsby could withstand his little woman's look as it enters at his eyes 
the windows of his soul, and searches the whole tenement, he were other than the man he is. He cowers and droops. "'Or, oh, my juvenile friends,' says Chadband, descending to the level of their comprehension with a very obtrusive demonstration in his greasily meek smile of coming a long way downstairs for the purpose. "'If the master of this house was to go forth into the city, and there see an eel, and was to come back, and was to call unto him the mistress of his house, and was to say, "'Sarah, rejoice with me, for I have seen an elephant,' would that be to Ruth? Mrs. Snagsby in tears. "'Or put it, my juvenile friends, that he saw an elephant.' and returning said lo the city is barren i have seen but an eel would that be teruth mrs snagsby sobbing loudly or oh, put it my juvenile friends said chadband stimulated by the sound that the unnatural parents of this slumbering heathen for parents he had my juvenile friends beyond a doubt after casting him forth to the wolves and the vultures and the wild dogs and the young gazelles and the serpents went back to their dwellings and had their pipes and their pots and their flutings and their dancings and their malt liquors and their butchers meat and poultry would that to Ruth. Mrs. Snagsby replies by delivering herself a prey to spasms, not an unresisting prey, but a crying and a tearing one, so that Cook's court re-echoes with her shrieks. Finally, becoming cataleptic, she has to be carried up the narrow staircase like a grand piano. After unspeakable suffering, productive of the utmost consternation, she is pronounced, by expresses from the bedroom, free from pain, though much exhausted, in which state of affairs Mr. Snagsby, trampled and crushed in the pianoforte removal, and extremely timid and feeble, ventures to come out from behind the door in the drawing-room. All this time Joe has been standing on the spot where he woke up, ever picking his cap and putting bits of fur in his mouth. He spits them out with a remorseful air, for he feels that it is in his nature to be an unimprovable reprobate, and that it's no good his trying to keep awake, for he won't never know nothing. Though it may be, Joe, that there is a history so interesting and affecting even to minds as near the brutes as thine, recording deeds done on this earth for common men, that if the Chadbands, removing their own persons from the light, would but show it thee in simple reverence, would but leave it unimproved would but regard it as being eloquent enough without their modest aid, it might hold thee awake, and thou might learn from it yet. Joe never heard of any such book. Its compilers and the Reverend Chadband are all one to him, except that he knows the Reverend Chadband, and would rather run away from him for an hour than hear him talk for five minutes. It ain't no good my waiting here no longer, thinks Joe. Mr. Snagsby ain't a-going to say nothing to me to-night and downstairs he shuffles. But downstairs is the charitable Guster, holding by the handrail of the kitchen stairs, and warding off a fit, as yet doubtfully the same having been induced by Mrs. Snagsby's screaming. She has her own supper of bread and cheese to hand to Joe, with whom she ventures to interchange a word or so for the first time. "'Here's something to eat, poor boy,' says Guster. "'Thank ye, Mum,' says Joe. "'Are you hungry?' 
Gist, says Joe. What's gone of your father and mother, eh? Joe stops in the middle of a bite and looks petrified, for this orphan charge of the Christian saint, whose shrine was a tooting, has patted him on the shoulder, and it is the first time in his life that any decent hand has been so laid upon him. I never knowed nothing about em, says Joe. No more didn't I of mine, cries Guster. She is repressing symptoms favourable to the fit, when she seems to take alarm at something, and vanishes down the stairs. "'Joe!' whispers the law-stationer softly, as the boy lingers on the step. "'Here I am, Mr. Snagsby.' <coughs> "'I didn't know you were gone. There's another half-crown, Joe. It was quite right of you to say nothing about the lady the other night, when we were out together. It would breed trouble.' You can't be too quiet, Joe. I'm fly, master. And so, good night. A ghostly shade, frilled and nightcapped, follows the law stationer to the room he came from, and glides higher up. And henceforth he begins, go where he will, to be attended by another shadow than his own, hardly less constant than his own hardly less quiet than his own, and into whatsoever atmosphere of secrecy his own shadow may pass, let all concerned in the secrecy beware. For the watchful Mrs. Snagsby is there too, bone of his bone, flesh of his flesh, shadow of his shadow. End of chapter 25「What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy and delicious breads, buns and tortillas? These ultra-low net carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. »